Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers, an anime podcast with Connor and Neve. Uh, I am Neve, and I'm Connor. And today we are talking about episodes 14 through 19 of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Um, I think when we first took a crack at doing this podcast, I think I originally did 14 through 20, forgetting how much of a cliffhanger 20 was. I'm not like firmly anti doing cliffhangers on this this podcast, but I kind of like after I watched those, we ended up not recording a podcast after it, but I was kind of also like, oh, I feel like I would actually like to just cut this at 19 and then we can kind of talk about everything that happens from 20 onward as like a whole, because without giving too much away for people who are watching along, but like the last seven episodes of the show are fairly continuous. There's a lot less of the here is the case of the week vibe to it. Whereas this one is like very, every single one is case of the week. There's not, there is some like connective tissue, which is interesting, but it is a lot more like, oh, here's what this episode is about. So unless you have any specific thoughts before we get into it, I'll I'll let you open up episode 14 here. Yeah, I guess I'll just say, uh, you know, last time we, we, last time we attempted to, to do this podcast, we just as you said, we, we never got around to talking about these episodes. So we're like officially in uncharted waters now. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I feel like this time we had, not that we didn't have good conversations the first time we recorded it, but we were able to feed off of what came up in that first conversation when we first tried this to like push our conversations here further. For example, we recorded like three hours that I'm editing down to two and a half right now for the previous episode. You're welcome for that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, some of that was just like literally dead air or, you know, we took a body break and everything, but I I have a feeling we're going to spend a while on a few of these episodes, especially these first two. Um, Not to again, front load (laughs) it, but (laughs) there's just a lot to get in here. Two and a half Um, hours on two episodes and and then 30 minutes for everything else. And like, as a note, you know, the way that this podcast is structured, I'm obviously trying to break up shows into like fairly digestible chunks. My 
aim was kind of oh a long movie if someone can like sit down and watch a long movie to watch along with a podcast that's like a three or at most four hour movie like that kind of time commitment in terms of episodes is the like max that i'm shooting for but i still have some wiggle room in how i'm breaking these up because a lot of these series that we're watching will have like that 26 or 25 episode format where uh, you're not going to get very concrete quarters like super easy it's like six episodes every time and so i can kind of pick and choose where i'm drawing those lines and i have intentionally done it in ways especially since i know this series so well at this point where i feel like we can talk about a theme for a podcast episode and then watch the next episodes and then go like and now what we were talking about has gotten complicated or uh has like been upended in some way um and i think the the big one that came up with our last episode is talking a lot about major kuzanagi that idea of this dream of a revolution and i think if you sat someone down and you just had them watch the the last few episodes that we talked about it would be like oh like major kuzanagi seems like she's got some sort of revolutionary thing going on there and like immediately episode 14 is going to show you the limits of that yeah (laughs) Um, not the episode 13 and the mowing down of terrorists wasn't like already complicating it but i kind of liked us finishing off with like oh here's the series starting to get us to think even more about like wait the heroes of this are cops and the next few episodes are very like oh the heroes of this are cops yeah <laughs> like yeah. And- <laughs> they are they are embedded in the state um in ways that they like can't fully extricate themselves absolutely and uh in our next episode i think that really you know the series itself dramatizes that like the the way in which section nine kind of becomes somewhat dislocated from like the government from this institutional framework but still like never entirely i think and this is kind of an aside but i think this can be a frustrating but very rich series for that reason because i don't think i don't think kusanagi uh, or section nine itself really ever arrives at this clearly you know utopianist idealism I think there are I think there are significant changes in in outlook and in evolution of sectionized institution and then the individuals within it. But I think you mentioned last episode, you know, it's not really clear, it's not necessarily just a happy ending what we what we get at the end of season one. It's kind of more complicated than that. And uh I think yeah. we, we see that in this episode. Yeah, I think another piece that comes up for me here as well with this discussion because i've also been talking about like what is the the trans resonance for a lot of this and one thing that strikes me especially on this rewatch is i think a thing that the trans community often has some trouble grappling with or like having it there's a lot of difficulty around this fact that in the united states the largest employer of trans people currently is the u.s military and there's like that it is an incredibly difficult thing to fully grapple with because on one end when it's like oh trump is trying to push trans people out of the military it's like i have this standpoint of like 
laughing at the idea of what we need is more female drone pilots is like more queer drone pilots like no that's that's not what progress means or solidarity or actual material like long-term improvement for these marginalized communities and yet at the same time there is this material reality of if you cannot be trans in the military there are a bunch of trans people who are suddenly going to lose their jobs and yeah that like material reality has to be contended with to some extent when you're then also looking at like, what does it mean to fight for the dissolution of these systems? So, you know, I'm also bringing this up because again, we're recording this slightly out of order or like out of time from when these are airing literally earlier today was like the official projection Biden is winning and there's been a lot of, I don't know what it's like for you where you live in Chicago. There's been a lot of people driving around and like cheering and honking horns and everything like the Cubs one, which is weird to me um, that like politics and sports are being reacted to in basically the exact same way. And for me, not even Biden's win, but Trump's loss is in some way relieving, like putting down a heavy weight. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I'm like incredibly de- deeply frustrated about how inadequate Biden is as a thing to then elevate, like in that absence, to like set down that heavy weight and then have to pick up, you know, I, I tweeted this earlier, a slightly less heavy weight. <laughs> right. That's like, yeah. and it's that moment of like, it is still less heavy. And so I'm like, I'm kind of happy that we're watching Ghost in the Shell in this moment because this is also something that for me as someone who believes in trans liberation, who moves to some extent in trans activist spaces, even though I've like given up on really trying to do that on Twitter because it's felt really pointless to me. But it Mm -hmm. there is this difficulty of like, how do how do we balance the push for systems to change with like how do we still protect people in that process? Because again, like if the military disbands, that's a lot of trans people without a job, even though I think it's still a net positive. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, it like thinking of that, it's so hard for me to not look at section nine in general, and especially major Kuzanagi as a person who is tied up into the state because the state is the thing that allows her to exist, allows her to have her body in like this very direct material way. Like she needs these prosthetics to some extent, perhaps she doesn't need quite as advanced as prosthetics as she has, but this is still like a route for her to have access to the cyberized body that allows her to exist and like, self-actualize or have some sort of reclaiming of the body even at the same time that like oh on one end this is a body that i'm claiming as my own and at the same time it is also a body that is owned by the state in a way and i i think that's like a Mm -hmm. a, yeah for me that's one of the core tensions going on in this series so we haven't even gotten to episode 14 yet but that's like one of the things that's front of mind for me here even as i think these six episodes that we're talking about are getting very into the politics of the show, but I think are actually dealing less directly with the major's body than like the last group grouping of episodes we talked about. 
really did. And I think what we're going to go into, we'll start touching on it again as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I really don't mind. I mean, we are on a tangent right now. Given the circumstances that we're recording this in, I really don't mind taking some time to discuss this. Oh, also totally forgot to mention this the last two times we recorded, but those are like being released around like Hanukkah and Yule and Christmas and everything. So like hope everyone had a great holiday. Uh, Happy New Year. This is coming out in January. (laughs) (laughs) By the time that this comes out, everyone's going to be so fucking tired of having like listened to analysis about Biden, like beating Trump that we're just we'll have totally missed the boat. (laughs) But that's okay. Um, so uh, before we do that, I'll, I'll segue by I want to pick up on uh, something that you, you mentioned earlier. Um, your point about Kusanagi, her position in the institution, maybe in a certain way, you know, relying on her employment with Section 9 to have access to, to her prosthetics and uh, maintenance for them and, and so on and so forth. That's a really interesting point uh, that I, I hadn't considered you know, I think it's interesting, and then we can talk about, you know, how this this could lead into a larger conversation about ideology itself and how that works with individuals and, and institutions. But I think it's interesting because Kusanagi, in in addition to like maybe needing her her role with her employment with Section Nine for these existential uh, reasons. It's pretty clear, at least in my reading, that she really identifies with like Section Nine and her her position in a way that it doesn't feel like, ah, oh, you know, I have to do this. It's like, oh yeah, like, you know, like I I am like, you know, the second in command for Section Nine, and like I'm getting shit done because yeah. that's what we do at Section Nine. She's the only character in Section 9 who is very regularly just referred to by her position, the major. Yeah. Like, even Aramaki, I think, will get called chief, but, like, they're not regularly... I'm, I'm not even sure exactly what his, like... Yeah, I guess he is chief of Public Security Section 9, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like you get Aramaki as a name more often than chief compared to, like, the major with kusanagi blah 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 absolutely um and like bato and everyone else they never they never call them by (laughs) like here's your name yeah bato's just bato yeah (laughs) um okay so episode 14 (laughs) so we'll do a, a continuing on the tradition of last time we will do a brief recap so uh, in this episode, basically centers on a famous capitalist, uh, one of the like richest men in Japan named Kanemoto. There is a uh, an assassination attempt by this woman named Fem, who is also a communist, who for it's kind of implied like she's hired to kill him, but also she's doing it for ideological reasons because she's a communist revolutionary. But... Uh, she is attempting to assassinate this man who's, again, uh, this total recluse um, and lives hidden away in this mansion. And the uh, Section 9 catches wind of it, and, and which results in this kind of almost police police procedural chase uh, type plot, uh, where eventually they, they catch Femme just in time. She's infiltrated Ka- uh, Kanemoto's mansion, and she's about to assassinate him, and they apprehend her. 
only to find out that Kanemoto has died three or four months previously, since he has no family or associates and he's this infamous hermit, no one has found out. And he's he's actually created a, a some sort of stock trading program, an automated program that has been running since his death, simulating his, his market activity. Uh, so since his market activity hasn't stopped, no one no one even knew he was dead, which is the big twist ending. So this episode I, I really enjoyed for, for several reasons, but I will let you go ahead and uh, take the lead on this one. Yeah, this is also one we haven't like called out a lot of the episode titles, but this the episode title here is Automated Capitalism and then also like yen, euro, dollar sign spelling out yes. And this is really the first time that I, I think the series has directly referenced this idea of like actual opposition to the capitalist system that's clearly running uh, the Japan of the series. We even get the like very beginning cold open to this show of femme coming into the country and then doing this quote directly referencing the beginning of the communist manifesto where in the communist manifesto it's um, a specter is haunting europe the specter of communism all the powers of old europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter and basically goes on to make this point of like there hasn't been this organized this is what the manifesto of communism is and since um already europe is organizing to try and stamp out like this thing that exists uh that it is developing let us like actually put it to paper so that we can form some sort of defense and you know crucially here fem changes it being the specter of capitalism also like Watching this, I don't know whether or not this is referencing. There was also a book that was published called The Spectre of Capitalism. It was published in, like, I think, 92, so it would have predated this show. And was talking about how there's kind of the fall of communism that happened with the fall of the Soviet Union. And then putting laying out this case that essentially capitalism now that it no longer had as clear of a enemy or like antagonist to go against would have to answer some of the questions that have been raised by communism and the fall of communism and kind of put forth this view uh, of capitalism that is incorporating certain elements of like regulation and things like that i haven't actually read the specter of capitalism but there's a, a part of me too that's like trying to figure out how how much is this directly referencing that or is this kind of twisting it in some way of like capitalism is it almost getting at the same metaphor even if it doesn't realize it's doing it of like capitalism has reached this point where now it has become some sort of specter that has to form some sort of cohesive ideology to to like continue to exist i i don't know it's just this is it's very interesting to me that this is the like literally the halfway point of this series. We actually finally get this heavy evocation of communist revolution against a system that up until this point, we have not really seen a concerted, especially concerted ideological opposition to revolutionaries have been mentioned, but never like given this clear of a direction 
or specific like anti-capitalist ideology. Yeah, I think I think we can see this as a as kind of a line from or or as a continuation of some of the like rumblings that have occurred. We've talked in previous episodes about how in some of the world building that the series has essentially revealed that the Japan uh, modern Japan is uh, ruled over by these by this kind of oligarchy of corporations specifically the genomics corporations and we see in the laughing in the assassination episode the kind of spontaneous like spontaneous generation of revolutionary ideology that you know they think it's the virus but in reality it's just people like identifying with the laughing man and this anti-institutional kind of impulse but of course there's no name for that in the moment and then now we see like kind of the obvious corollary here which is communism and it's kind of addressed as a a historical fact but doesn't really seem to be something that almost in the way that the the terrorists on the oil rig are uh represented it's almost seen to be this kind of like unmoored like oh yeah femme is this like a solitary communist revolutionary who has no like organizational backing (laughs) there doesn't seem to be any like real communist system internationally or nationally it's also interesting to me because on one end it is suggesting that and yet at the same time is heavily referencing these various markers of like china as this like potential communist threat or something like when i think fem is from china the initial raid is set in chinatown you can kind Mm -hmm. of tell from the architecture the windows they're doing a lot of markers of china um which i think is directly also referencing this tension that exists between japan and china they have a, a long history of honestly like hatred and war between them and so there is this way in which I, I think this episode is at one on one hand uh, introducing you and like pushing you more towards this idea of a communist revolution against the system, but is in a, a certain way still, I think, especially for like a Japanese audience that would have associations with the animosity between Japan and China, they're they're. I don't think the show is making this reading, but I think a very dense person watching this film could make the reading that this is still very like, ah, uh, like Japan is just and China is this no good communist and like Japan is, you know, fighting back against the, yeah, the communist Japanese menace. Thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I feel like it is, this is one of those ones too where like, I, I am sure there are ways that I can talk about that episode like episode 10 that would get more into how it's complicating things but part of it too is i'm not as deeply steeped into some of the japanese politics i have some knowledge because i have a friend from japan who does like some political activism things there but especially around some of the themes that were happening in episode 10 like that's just not where their area is whereas they are like more explicitly doing communist work in japan um also doing work around some of the things that will come up later on with, I think, episode 17, or, or is it 18? 18. Like, what happened in, with Kagoshima, Okinawa, stuff like that. So, there's that level for me where 
when I watched this one, I, I can more easily see the way that they are playing with what might be right wing signifiers in Japan of like the enemy or the threat, but then intentionally complicating that, especially with what happens with Tachikoma. And we even get an early hint of this. We get Tachikoma kind of naively commenting on the inequalities of society when they're in this area in Chinatown of like, oh, they threw away an old guy. And then, of course, like the major just being like, oh, the local authorities will take care of that being just like, oh, the police are going to come harass this unhoused person who's sleeping in trash and then of course also we get the major falling into trash where it's like then this humiliation for her to be in the trash whereas for this old man this is just his bed this is where he's sleeping this is like the the space that society has for him and especially at the more that i watch the series the harder it is for me to not be like that was not intentional because i'm pretty yeah. sure it was intentional to to show that and then have the major fall into the trash herself. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there's also um, what I think this episode does a great job of is fleshing out again, just the workings of like capitalism or really condensing it into like a 20 minute episode. I think one of the things that really stood out to me this time was this idea of capitalism as like a game that can be beaten i think about this sometimes with people like like bezos in real life who just have insofar as capitalism is like a game or a system that can be bent to the will of one person they have done it and they seem to then just exist thereafter once they've beaten it just continually raising their high score kind of like you know these people who play donkey kong competitively and there's a there's a pathology to that and well i was gonna say and cheated it but then well, i guess there, there was go. like yeah. <laughs> i he still probably he still probably cheated at it but th- there was something that like proved he was innocent but most people don't believe it the whole king of kong thing just interjecting yeah, completely well, but, but ignore you know me. <laughs> It makes sense, though. Like, you know, there's there's cheating involved. Undoubtedly, when someone accrues, like, hundreds of billions of dollars, it's probably safe to assume that some, some laws have been broken uh, along the way. And uh, again, this is not necessarily a, an original observation, but the idea that wealth uh, becomes a pathology after a certain point, I think that's something that's really a central point of this episode. Kanemoto, one of the main characteristics that we learn about him is that he's a a mathematician. He was originally a famous mathematician who got, quote-unquote, bored with dealing with theoretical numbers and wanted to, like, control real-world forces. Uh, He wanted to apply his, his genius to, like, the market, which he does successfully. Uh, And once, once he's done that, his only joy in life comes from just hoarding gold in his house. And uh, quite literally, uh, we see at the end, they find his corpse laying in bed and in his bedroom where he's surrounded by like mountains of gold. And uh, uh, this is an odd reference, but I mean, this kind of idea is as old as something like Beowulf, where you have like uh, the idea of kings 
becoming sick with like like the the dragon hoarding gold as an analog for you know a tyrannical like wealth obsessed ruler just these images of people like hoarding gold as this uh, pathological tick yeah even like i think it's favnir who's um was originally a dwarf and then was so greedy and hoarding gold that transformed into a dragon um that like not only is it the analogy or like oh the idea of a dragon hoarding wealth is something representing that but there are even like direct myths about greed being a thing that can transform you into that monster and uh and we see even uh, another kind of transformation that occurs with the creation of this money-making program which is heavily implied to be kanemoto's like main activity like leading up to his death just pouring all of his knowledge into this ai which is his pathology and his his wealth-making acumen just completely like stripped away from any other aspect of humanity and like preserved because he felt that this was the most important thing about him to preserve which you know continues obviously to exist after his death so i think there's there's a lot going on in this episode where you kind of watch it over and it's like oh this might not be the most eventful like actiony episode but when you really start digging into it it's like okay yeah this is quite critical we also as a final comment we also have a, uh, I think the episode invites you to consider the like tenacity with which the institution is protecting Kanemoto. It is uh, obviously Section 9, which is the highest police authority in Japan that takes on this case. And at a certain point, they have some witnesses, I believe. And the major tells Togusa, like, oh, interrogate the witnesses, do whatever it takes, which I thought of... Uh, this uh, do-whatever-it-takes mentality towards protecting property, wealthy individuals, um, and the capitalist system in general that we see from police, obviously, in, in the U.S. as well. So, yeah, I know that was a lot, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess we can wrap back. I was going to bring up the Tachikomas, but I almost want to finish with them because it is connective tissue that's getting us to the next episode. So first, just to like to briefly call out a few touches. One is I feel like this is the first episode where we really start seeing a destruction of the body or a like breaking down of the body or deforming of the body being a thing like so the the fight that happens in this bar in Chinatown involves one of the people uh, they think that they've like oh, all they had was a shotgun, basically. But it turns out one of the the people there's, like, entire body opens up and it has this weird, like, eye the that's in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, you know, just super beefed up and everything. And, of course, we also get Femme opening up her arm where there's a concealed weapon inside and then using the coins as the ammunition for that weapon. This is something that I think we can get more into. What do we think about this when we get to the final episode we're going to discuss? Because we also see that happen there. So I'm willing to like push that conversation in the interest of not, again, spending like an hour on one episode. <laughs> yeah, which we're, we're approaching. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we spent a bunch of time not talking about this episode. So <laughs> I, I, I think another 
piece that is kind of tied up. So one, there's a very interesting moment here, uh, like a filmic technique where kind of used as music, but I think it is the sound of a money machine, like a money counting machine that would be in a bank. And it permeates multiple scenes for a while. So it starts with section nine and them sort of talking about the case. It then goes into the CNFM actually in the bank and then even continues after she's left and is loading the 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 coins into her arm. And it's like this weird like pulsing sound that again, it's kind of rhythmic. It's kind of like acting as a soundtrack, but I, I believe the actual specific sound that's happening is like the money counting machines that are in banks. And so throughout all of this, there is this like pulsing transaction of capitalism occurring that like it just struck me in particular when I was watching this. Also, we of course have to call out some of the gender that's happening here. I think the part that's the most interesting to me is the code name for the this assassin being femme. We never get her name, but like femme just being such a demarker of you know, femme being feminine, femme being female, mm. all of these sorts of things that like feels in some way still commenting on or tying up into there is something about being the other in the society that then like is also a part of being this revolutionary or something. I don't fully know what it's suggesting. It just like that strikes me that that is the, the code name that they picked for her. And we don't have to go fully into the whole like the major having to change her clothing and Bato being all interested in classic cars <laughs> as a cis straight dude. But yeah. <laughs> um, rest assured the even as we're not going to be talking a bunch about the major's body in these episodes, gender will continue to happen. So yeah, there is a there is it is highlighted and yeah, there's a couple little blips with the there's a yeah that random scene where Bato is walking by the the garage and sees the classic cars and he's just like oh wow yeah that's it's a shame that no one's driving these cars might have to might yeah. have to borrow yeah, one it's just it, there's like it, it, it goes nowhere like it's one of those instances like yeah which I, I think are pretty few and far between in a series where it's just like a complete almost throwaway scene that doesn't like lead into anything else yeah. ever uh so I laughed when I watched that. Yeah, like at most it exists as like here is a like reason that he's distracted and then these robot dogs come up that he doesn't want to kill and is like, you know, tying into some of these aspects of Bato's compassion that will be significant in the next episode and also will will continue to be developed in these episodes. Which is perhaps a good reason for us to or a good point for us to actually switch over to the Tachikomas and especially the end of this episode where I think it, it is particularly interesting to me that the final straw. So the next episode we're going to talk about is specifically getting into section nine decommissioning and uh, sending the Tachikomas back to the lab for like basically malfunctioning by developing souls <laughs> is essentially why it's it's bad or wrong but it's also particularly interesting to me that the final straw there's the service level of it's like oh the tachikoma 
is kind of talking back to the major in some way, does not understand the correction or the warning that she's giving and is developing some sort of sense of consciousness is like really the big official reason given but it's specifically around this moment of the tachikoma they're they're having this conversation about oh you know he accrued all of this wealth and now that he's dead i guess it's like he doesn't have any surviving heirs or anything um i guess it'll just have to go to the state and the major's like oh that's you know that's really unfair that this man like accrued all of this wealth using a machine like a program that he wrote <laughs> and now it's going to go to the state and the tachikoma is like isn't it more unfair that he was accruing all of this wealth while like other people are starving and you know sleeping in trash bags um and yeah like isn't it better that it goes to the state than like his like a single heir yeah and you know everybody in section nine is just like oh like silly naive tachikoma like you don't understand how the world works uh crucially you don't understand the concept of labor the like sole purpose that you have been built to do Uh, (laughs) and so like on one level this is a series that is talking about again like i find it fascinating that the show will take these concepts or the these themes that are sometimes explored in a lot of cyberpunk sci-fi and i think does a very good job of actually fleshing out what is the interiority of someone who is going through this who is like what is the interiority of tachikomas that are getting synced and are developing ghosts but are also getting confused consciousness which we'll get more into when we talk about the next episode and like what is that actual process for an individual who's going through it just adds so much more texture and richness to the those stories and those themes but it is also i think at the same time taking that theme to then talk about like the tachikoma in one sense is developing consciousness but in the other sense you could say is like moving towards class consciousness or some sort of political consciousness by expressing this like hey actually isn't this capitalist system weird and unfair and you all are supporting it and this is bizarre (laughs) um in this like kind of in the tachikoma way this kind of naive childish way that then gets like brushed off but i think it's important or or significant that the tachikomatic days which we'll talk about about uh talk about a little bit later but even like for this episode in the same way that we saw oh here's this like episode that you could read as glorifying police brutality against these terrorists and then the tachikomatic days are specifically about how ridiculously excessive this force was in this like kind of jokey childish way but it is still directly commenting on it this episode is also doing this like you could have this reading of like oh the silly tachikoma it's so naive it doesn't realize that it's playing this game that is actually like playing with the lives of another tachikoma but we were talking about the whole way that the series is talking about like Kanemoto, how he is treating like trading and capitalism as a game that can be won. And it is then of course, specifically commenting on playing a game with other human lives Mm -hmm. and kind of being oblivious to the damage that you are causing. And again, doing it in this like kind of jokey, Oh, here's this like childish robot 
tachikomatic days this little like cute short at the end but it's one of those things where i'm like okay this is like clearly something that the show is commenting on and is even using the tachikomatic days to continue to project some sort of sense of what is happening here is more than just the Tachikomas developing consciousness, but is also the Tachikomas arriving at an understanding of society that is at odds with like what Section 9 is trying to do. Even if that's not like at the top textual level, what's going on with the Tachikomas, it is still part of what's like thematically happening. Yeah. Um, and uh, as, as a final thought, there's a just to bring up a thinker that like I, I don't necessarily think that the series is engaging with like directly you know there's a classic proposition in aristotle that humans are the political animal that one of like the defining features of humanity is um to be political and i think the fact that the tachikomas you know, as they're coming into a consciousness or like a ghost quote-unquote that we immediately see uh, political consciousness like arising alongside of that. And of course, like the ghost is something that was considered tantamount to like being human, at least in the purposes of the show, it is kind of seen as the defining future of humanity. So yeah, I, I really I don't think it's a, a coincidence that the series frames it as, you know, inherently uh, immediately political. Um, consciousness as well as this kind of like pseudo human consciousness or something equivalent to it that the tachikomas are are coming to yeah so this might be a, a good time for us to switch over to episode 15 so this episode is specifically raising additional concerns about what's going on with the tachikomas and then it coming to this head of uh, as I already mentioned, them deciding to decommission them, send them back to the lab, that they have this defect of developing a ghost, essentially. Or I don't even think that they're necessarily stating that what they have is a ghost. Like, Section 9, Major Kusanagi is not saying they've developed a ghost and that's what the problem is. It's just like, oh, they've developed individuality and they're like behaving erratically in some way because of that we will get later on more about like oh they're the show kind of explicitly states through the tachikomatic days that these robots did actually develop a ghost of some sort but you know the the way that this episode plays out it kind of starts with the initial concerns about what's going on with them the major kind of telling bato like hey we're probably going to have to deactivate them, um, especially as they are disobeying orders to go talk to a targeting computer that um, is also being sent back to the lab for like overcorrecting and deeming Saito as a uh, like unnecessary <laughs> element of shooting people basically <laughs> um the like human operator of the gun who pulls the trigger is just like oh we don't actually need you and we get a lot of the introspection of the tachikomas with this um we get a little bit of this like great scene of bato talking to his tachikoma and being like hey the major thinks you're kind of like screwy something's going on but like you're fine right and the tachikoma's like 
I have been thinking about the concept of God, and I think I get it now. It's like zero in binary. It is the number that denies the absence of something, that if there's a zero, then they're like, if we have the concept of zero, then truly there isn't actually an absence. What there is is zero. And so, like, this is what God is for a machine, whereas, like, the analog equivalent is something different. And then Bato's just like, yeah, you're, like, definitely fucked up. (laughs) Just be quiet. Don't say anything else. (laughs) Just, like... (laughs) What what the fuck? You're, you're you're fucked up. And then coming to this like kind of 2001 A Space Odyssey sequence of the Tachigoma is trying to spy on this conversation where the major is just like, "Hey, we're deactivating these, you know, Tachikomas. This is gonna be hard on you, basically." And some of it is because of like you treating them as something other than machines. But yeah, that's kind of, I mean, I've already hit on some of the points that we'll probably dive into more, but that that is this episode in a nutshell. Yeah, so from that, that short plot summary, you, you'd probably conclude that we won't be talking about this episode for much longer. But, oh yeah, nothing interesting happening. But you, you would be incorrect. <laughs> so there's a lot uh, that, that happens in this episode. It's very dense. Sorry for front-loading this episode too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you all are welcome. Again, we're gonna we're gonna have a mad dash through the last like four episodes or whatever. It's gonna be like two minutes per episode. Okay, so I think this is a really great moment actually to revisit the opening quote of the series that is shown at the very start of episode one. I know we we totally blew off reading it when we discussed episode one and I felt really bad about that because I think I feel like we cheated cheated all of you wonderful listeners so I think we're going to go ahead and do that now okay opening screen the statement is it is a time when even if nets were to guide all consciousness that had been converted to photons and electrons toward coalescing standalone individuals have not yet been converted into data to the extent that they can form unique components of a larger complex So the real reason that I bring that up here is because I think this is an episode where that concept emerges in a particularly obvious way. This idea of a shared network of consciousnesses, of consciousnesses converging into a a singular, some sort of singular entity, whether it's a system or something else, while also being able to retain some sort of individual identity. I think at the start of the series, it is, it's presupposed that this is not possible. But here, I think with the Tachikomas, we begin to see what this might look like. One of the, one of the really interesting and amusing scenes in this episode is a debate between the Tachikomas about... It's kind of a uh, scattered debate where they discuss ghosts and uh, anti-cyberization terrorist groups... But crucially, they all have different points of view. They're all arguing different angles. They're not only arguing different angles, but like conveying emotional responses. Like one of the Tachikomas says, "Like, oh God, I can't believe those like Luddite anti-cyberization people. They're just like living in the past, and it's just completely galling for me." And in a certain way, I mean, debate is uh, kind of the ultimate representation of individuality or desynchronization i mean if you are one entity i mean you can 
you can have a debate with yourself in theory, but you know that that re- uh, requires a a level of distancing within yourself. So there's there's separation here that's occurred. They seem to genuinely hold like different viewpoints, yeah. and this is significant because at the same time, like we know that they synchronize. Um, so all of their memories are synchronized and shared on a consistent basis. So simultaneously, the Tachikomas, their, uh, if we can like venture to use this term, their consciousnesses are part of a, a singular system or converged and linked together through this synchronization. We see later they have this, the same memories, but at the same time, they have a sense of individuality. So there's this tension here that really seems to me to link back in an obvious way to this opening statement. I don't know if if you feel the same way. Yeah, it's one of those things where there is this like, at the same time that the show is, I think, expressing like, how does the human individual blend into some sort of greater collective? There is also this... Like, on the other end, how does this collective consciousness of the net, like, form identities out of it? So, like, I think that's part of what this is playing with and and what's going on and, like, how that relates to the initial thesis statement of this, which is that in the broad sense, we kind of have this, like, fully individualized here's human identities in our current society, and then here's, like this code that like lacks any sort of ghost or identity and is kind of not even collective, but it is just like, you know, this network of different things. And then like what happens when you start blending that line? And this is where I'm pounding on my like Tachikomas. What's going on with the Tachikomas is about communism, blah, blah, blah. Because I, I think part of what's being represented here is like, what does it mean to have individuals who are also a part of a collective who to some extent in this way, like in this series literalized, but to in some extent are like sharing in each other's experiences and organizing together. And so that's like, for, for me, it is so hard to not read what is going on with like, we have to shut this down being specifically about a capitalist response to a threat to it that is it by its nature something that is like that is dangerous because of its collectivism and because of its sense of commonality and uh, shared experience and this like desire to fight capitalism which like the the nature of capitalism is exclusion and individuality like individualism and this idea of independence and the self is so self-interest yeah it's so key to capitalism because in order for capitalism to exist it must pit individuals against each other so that there can be there can be the inequality that then like creates the system that is capital there's also um as a quick interjection like in, in agree in agreement with your point um so much of the like Tetrakoma's activity is strongly reminiscent for me of like labor organizing in the workplace. Yeah. Like <laughs> gathering into the middle of the workplace and being like, hey, everyone, like what's going Someone on? Someone with experience of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there might be reasons why it's reminiscent, but 
yeah just a quick interjection there which then also makes it funny that there's this like the tachikomas don't understand the concept of labor um especially as like the concept of labor literally the thing that they were built to do and then like the tachikoma is talking to bato about the concept of god and it's like <laughs> like i think the tachikoma actually understands like labor and what it's doing or like it is hard not to look at the other things that they're talking about and not say they also have this sense of like the work that they are doing and that they are starting to reach some level where they're becoming critical of that even as they are still like enthusiastic to be useful to these humans that they like um, especially Bato, like, you know, they all and love Bato. There's also, like, this is a great moment to bring up Miki and them all sharing this experience of Miki, them having this debate over which one of us actually was the one that went with Miki. And the, the thing that answers that debate is Bato coming and saying, hey, Tachikoma, like my Tachikoma, the one that I use come with me and then that one being like oh i guess it was me because i was bato's tachikoma and i was the one who met miki and it being specifically this like singling out by another person who has some sort of affection that like answers that question of which one of us like developed this relationship with this little girl named miki which uh well we can talk about the song when we get to next episode but like i'm like fully when i read it about the act that actual song and the origin behind it the like girl that it's about or is believed to be about was kimi and it's like hmm. miki kimi like <laughs> okay this is especially japanese being like a syllabic language like this is specifically something that fits within like the way that you would rearrange japanese you know anagrams in japanese have to like preserve the the syllable so yeah, Kimi, Miki, it's like, hmm, there's like, there's stuff going on here, which also touches on, um, so I have the DVD box set of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. I got it back. Again, I think I first watched this on um, Adult Swim and I was immediately like, I have to own this. I think it was one of the many ones that I bought used because back in the day, DVD box sets of anime were like $200 when they first came out, not even like trying to like buy rare copies which can still come yeah, up. Yeah, just, you know, buying them at Blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah, you just you'd go to your FYE uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh but yeah, I I think the only box sets that I actually bought new back in the day were the Platinum Collection of Evangelion um specifically because I knew I could sell the like used a version of the original that I bought to like recoup some of the costs. And then also Kino's journey, just because Kino's journeys will get to it eventually. I'm sure I love that series so much. So yeah, like lately I've been watching it for this series with the English dub, which is how I first saw it on adult swim, but also with the subtitles. And so it's been interesting for me comparing the differences between them and often the differences feel like the translations are essentially trying to get to the same point and they in the dub they are just localizing it a little bit more one for lip syncing purposes like how do i line this up so that when a voice actor is doing it it like makes sense is coming out of this mouth 
And some of it is also just like, oh, we're going to like make this slightly more slangy than we do in the subtitle. So they might say something like, got it or something in the subtitle. And then the the dub will be like, Roger. Or uh, there was some other one where I, I think it's one of the later episodes where they referred. I think it's the final episode we're discussing where they refer to Kruzkova as that lady is what it says in the sub when one of the girls are talking about it about her but then in the dub it's like that bitch um, which is like possibly expressing some sort of intensity of language that like I, I think often Japanese is a little less prone to swear words but that might still express intensity in terms of like just the brevity of a, a word or something or like the brevity of certain phrases especially because you can drop parts of a sentence so much more easily in Japanese than in English. But yeah, all of this to say one glaring distinction between the sub and the dub for the DVD is in the sub when the Tachikoma is up on the podium addressing the group and doing this like uh union organizing. <laughs> um in the sub is saying gentlemen, um whereas in the dub the Tachikoma actually says comrades. One thing I thought was interesting is in both the sub and the dub, when they are talking amongst themselves, they switch between it and like he to talk to each other. And some of this is like, I don't speak enough Japanese to be able to like listen to it and know what pronouns are necessarily being used all the time. But I also know that Japanese as a language is one that's actually far easier to talk about someone at length without ever using any sort of gendered pronoun mm-hmm. and so i wonder if some of this is just the localizing team being like there's something going on that we're trying to express here and the way we're going to choose to do it is by switching between it being like oh we are all objects or we are all tools and then he being like let us identify some sort of more human identity and then just like using he by default or something but yeah that like them specifically having them in the dub say comrades is just like okay yeah like <laughs> this is something going on and we'll talk more about the song when we talk about the next episode and kind of like start that episode with it but i i think some of it is also to maybe reference some of what the show is i think referencing in other ways about like socialism and communism but trying to make it more explicit to an English viewer who is not going to know the associations that a Japanese audience would have with a folk song about a girl wearing red shoes. Um. Yeah, they try really hard, though. They even have the the dialogue being like, do you know what that song means? And then they're like, yeah, you know, yeah, poverty, poverty destroys families. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess we can ju- we can just talk about this song now. We've like touched on it enough. So we, we we should we should make space for like the to say like there's a very clear heavy-handed like homage to 2001 a space odyssey at the end of 14 or 15 sorry and that would be really fun to talk about but maybe for another day if you want to hear it blow us up in the in the question the question box yeah and we'll revisit it like i don't have like concrete thoughts on it so i'm okay with us like breezing over this and it being uh send us an email ghostdiverspod at gmail.com if you want to hear more about this specific train of thought and i'll have more time to think on it but this like 
you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey is often read as a story, or I, I think it was even intended as a story of humans evolving beyond tools. Tools are really key to 2001 and how that movie is like positioning the uh, evolution of man throughout it. And I don't think that like this show is saying the same thing, but I think it's still saying like, again, there's this complicating like the tools and humanity, the evolution is not humanity evolving beyond it, but the tools and humanity evolving together into some sort of like less distinct separate thing. But again, I don't have like a fully cooked idea on that yet, but great thing. If you want to hear more, or if you have any other questions or things we want to talk about, ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Send it there. Preferably, like, put some context in the subject of, like, ghost in the shell so that I can quickly know where to sort it, especially as this goes on and we get more shows under our belt. So, yeah, we, we can talk a little bit about Red Shoes. And I also just want to, like, briefly talk about Tachi Comatic Days. But the beginning of the next episode, episode 16, gives us this tiny reminder of what happened in the previous episode where we actually see the Tachikomas being like shipped off basically and they are singing this folk song called Akaikutsu which translates to red shoes it is basically a nursery rhyme it's from the 20s so it's like an old folk song essentially the text of it here a young girl with red shoes was taken away by a foreigner she rode on a ship from Yokohama Pier taken away by a foreigner i imagine right now that she has become blue-eyed living in that foreigner's land every time i see red shoes i think of her and every time i meet a foreigner i think of her and then there was an unreleased fifth stanza that was discovered in the 70s of when she misses japan where she was born i imagine she stares at the blue sea and asks the foreigner if she can go home and Shortly before we recorded this, I ended up actually looking up and like, let's get some more detail on this because it clearly feels distinct there. As you mentioned, that comment of don't you know what that song is about? And so the believed established origin for this song was that it was about a young girl from Fushimi Shizuoka Prefecture named Iwasaki Kimi. So again, like, is this Miki Kimi also a direct like evocation of the story and essentially when she was three her parents joined a farm in Hokkaido that was being watched as part of the socialist movement at the time so this would have been in like 1905 and essentially ended up going to America was being shipped out because of the difficulties of that farming life and then like this is one of those things too where I think the show is saying like the the obvious meaning of like don't you know what that song is about is the same thing of like oh did you know that the ring around around the rosy is about the bubonic uh, plague and like people dying from the the plague and so kimi while in america contracted tuberculosis and was unable to return home to tokyo died of tuberculosis at age nine but then there was also this evocation of you know the socialist movement that was going on as well as the symbolism of the red shoes being significant and um, is often considered being a specific reference to like the soviet union 
and communism and and socialism and those kinds of movements at the time and so again it's this thing where on one end like oh it's the tachikomas and they're singing the song that's about a girl who died and it's like don't you know what the song is about and it's them going to their death and so we get that element of their narrative that is that like ai arriving to a ghost to some sort of consciousness and part of that consciousness being the ability to die and that they are in some way possibly going to a death or something like death as they are leaving but then again also the show is like specifically going hey this is also something about communism about socialism about what is happening with the tachikomas being about um not just consciousness but political consciousness so that the story of that song is this is the first time i've looked it up and i'm just like i knew i should have looked it up earlier because you don't put in an old folk song and have someone say don't you know the meaning of that song if it's not something important um i was just not expecting it to be like this is such a confirmation of everything that i think is going on here so <laughs> yeah it's funny that uh we were doing our our like immediate pre-work for the the podcast and i was like all right wait this is the last thing i want to do i just want to find the name of this song and now we've like <laughs> spun it into a complete like it's it's become like a very significant part of our analysis for for, for episode sixteen, um, yeah. Which um, like you know actually I'm glad we did because it makes a lot of sense. The series is subtle enough that when it like really asks you, <clears throat> when it hits you over the head with something, it's kind of like oh yeah maybe I should pay attention to that. Yeah. Before we actually get into episode 16, I want to like briefly touch on the Tachikomatic days. I've mentioned it some in our previous episodes, but I think this show is... So there's this trope or this uh, expectation, I guess, uh, is probably the best way to say it with anime that after the credits, there's some sort of next time on sequence. We'll see this plenty as we continue to go on with the show. And I, I think various shows will engage with it in different ways like when we talk about magic knight ray earth it's literally just like here's some music here's some like shots from the next episode here's like hikaru talking about something that's just like it's gonna be lots of fun okay uh you gotta love magic knight ray yeah earth. <laughs> and like evangelion does the same thing but in a a way that feels intentionally at odds and as like some sort of pastiche because the rest of the show like magic knight ray earth is overall so much more lighthearted, where that fits tonally much more whereas like the way that they do it in um evangelion is like like a cruel joke yeah (laughs) it's like a a cruel angels joke um That was that was a terrible angels joke, and then uh, but in Ghost in the Shell they very specifically do these sketches that are literally not next time on. It's actually like here's a sum summarization in some way of something that happened in the episode that you literally just watched. I haven't been talking about it with every single episode because some of them I think are a little bit more just straightforward. I have brought them up when it feels specifically significant, like the ending of the like brutality against the terrorists the way that they also bring it in at the end of the first episode we discussed where it's like playing the game with human lives and at the end of this one we get this joke about like oh tachi chromatic days are being canceled or i think maybe it's the end of episode 16 we get it i forget exactly what 
when it falls. Um, but it's just like, oh, they've been, you know, like you you come to this realization that the entire time the Tachikomatic days have been the system of them like syncing up with each other and sharing their experiences of what just happened on the previous mission in some way where they are all then like arriving at a, a shared common experience. And a lot of it is in this like chi- uh, childishly naive way of them reenacting something, even in the moments where the show is then like providing some sort of actual critical perspective on like the horrors of the state that section nine is bound up in they will often make that explicit by having this like kind of childish like oh like it's very clearly playing on types of anime that are based on like comedy manga um in particular and we get this joke of it being now the adventures of ceo jameson so again the show doesn't want to want you to forget about ceo jameson and his masculine core (laughs) And then I I think it's 16 or 17. It's like after the CEO, Jameson, we we return to Tachikomatic days, but instead we're going to start seeing. um, So first there's an explicit mention of a ghost where Tachikoma is like, oh no, while I was asleep, my ghost like slipped freed from my body, like my, my shell. And then is like struggling to try and get back in and then gets pulled away. And then we start seeing the the syncing process where they're trying to make them all identical. So they're like repeating the same actions or whatever, but then weird idiosyncrasies uh, still exist. Um, so I think at the end of the episodes we watched here, it kind of leaves on like almost all of them have synced to, oh, I am this angelic Western idea of a ghost that has like a halo and, you know, is going off to, you know, the pearly gates or whatever except one of them is still presenting as this Japanese conception of a ghost that's wearing this like white headwear. And so I'm like, I, I just want to push this out as like something that has been happening throughout this entire series. And that I, I didn't want to fully comment on yet because I know the first time I watched this series, I didn't realize what was really happening with the Tachikomatic days until I got to these moments where I was like, oh, this is like literally them sinking. This is what it's what it's representing. And so then even as the rest of the episodes we're going to talk about don't have Tachikomas at all, the show is going to continue to pull them back in as being like, let us remind you through this end, like after credits sequence, uh, the Tachikomas developed a ghost. They're like being synced up in some way. There's something that is happening to them in the background as the show progresses. I don't know if I have other specific thoughts on that or if you do, but I, I, I feel like it was worth highlighting here as some a, a specific device that the show is playing it, with. Yeah, and as a strong reminder, make sure you watch these. Uh, there are There is content uh, after the credits. Don't do what I did when I was watching My Hero Academia, where I watched like, God, I don't even know how many episodes there are, but I watched like all the way through like three quarters of the most recent season. And then only, only then like realized that like a significant number of episodes have after credits content that is like unique. That's like, it's like not promo for the next episode at all. It's like actually unique, like narrative content. And when I realized that, I was just like, God damn it. (laughs) 
So yeah, if you're watching the anime, if you're especially if you're watching the series along with us, yeah, uh, yeah don't do what I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm in, in terms of Ghost in the Shell. I mean, we'll see when we record the like intro to. I'm gonna like shout out if there are ways to watch it. Again, I'm watching like DVDs, and this is a show that weirdly has not often been on streaming services. But I know streaming services in particular are uh, especially egregious at just. Like, even if there are unique end of credit sequences, just being like, nah, just next episode, because they don't want to have people like get bored during the end credits, I guess. Um, so well, one exception is I watched the all of Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans on streaming services, and they get around it by literally just having the episode keep going as the credits go. <laughs> So, yeah, that's one where it's like it doesn't skip it because literally it's like the final credits are running and there's like still plot happening. <laughs> like it's like the very end where it's like produced by whatever, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, I like that. We're, we're like a battle is still occurring. Or it's, it's great. <laughs> that's very clever. And they also have a cold open. So like it doesn't even skip the beginning intro song either. Um, yeah. I, I'm sure we'll talk about Iron-Blooded Orphans at some point, because that is, like, I love that series, even as it is engaging in some, like, here's what's bad about anime. It's trying to engage with it critically. Who knows? <laughs> Does yeah, it always eventually, uh, eventually, this is just going to transform into a Gundam podcast. Not, not really, <laughs> but... Yeah, uh, we cannot compete with the great Gundam project, but we're still going to watch plenty of Gundam. We like the Tachikoma that reads books are fucking nerds. So Yeah, we are. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of like give everyone a peek behind the curtain here. I lobbied hard for us to do the uh, the original Gundam, which is like, I don't know, like too, too many episodes and like <laughs> 70s like anime. Yeah, I just I'm I'm just complete nerd and disregarding like how boring that would be for for all of our listeners i just really want to do that but it's not gonna I, happen I mean, thankfully my partner is more uh, no it it is look, look ahead people listening like january 2022 in our podcast schedule you're gonna start <laughs> we're gonna be watching gundam 79 the original gundam i just vetoed us doing it like literally right after Hermarty High School, which is what we're going to do after Ghost in the Shell, because I want to, like, have us do Ghost in the Shell and then two short series and get those under our belt and then, like, do this little arc that I have planned of Evangelion, Ray Earth, Utena. Yeah. Yeah. But don't worry. Once we're done with uh, Evangelion, Ray Earth, and Utena, some also at times very long series we'll then talk about gundam it's it, but <laughs> the original gundam it's really good watch it it's really good okay episode 16 well so before i do the recap uh i know you had a you have a quick comment that you want to that you want to make about this one um yeah i mean this is like this is one of those reasons where i felt slightly better being like let us quickly skip over episode 10 not that um episode 10 doesn't still in some way develop bato in interesting ways but 
I just knew that what this show is going to do thematically, like how they were going to develop Bato, how they were going to look a little bit more into some of the like history behind Section 9, um, was just in a way where I felt one like more comfortable in terms of people listening as an audience like focusing on those episodes more and also just me personally like i enjoy this bato episode a lot more than the serial killer one than episode 10 this one gives me like more of a look into bato and his relationships with others and his empathy in a way that feels like it is more directly engaging with what's happening in the series overall. And so like, if, if you're only going to watch one Bato episode of this entire series, this is the one I recommend. It's a good one. (laughs) This one. Absolutely. Um, I, I really enjoy this episode. Actually, I'll go ahead and do a recap. I, and I'll try and tie all of this together in a way that that makes sense. Cause we'll do a little bit of analysis here as well. So uh, the recap of this episode, um, I think it's important to note that this episode first starts with uh, something we've already discussed, um, which is the kind of fallout of the Tachikomas being decommissioned, the scene of the Tachikomas singing the song, having a quick conversation with Bato being like, hey, we're being decommissioned, but it's okay, like, don't worry about us, and then going on to their fate is, is the very first part of this episode. And then uh, it does that thing where that Ghost in the Shell has done previously, where it's kind of like smashing two nar- weird narratives together in one. So immediately following the conclusion of like the episode 15 narrative, uh, we get this entirely new storyline where Bato is assigned as an undercover agent to investigate this man named Zaitsev, this Russian man who we find out was a some sort of uh, boxer or I, I guess it's boxer because he was an, he was a former Olympian who is suspected of engaging in some spy activity. Bato goes undercover. He has some prior knowledge of Zaitsev. It's uh, it's implied that he some he studied Zaitsev's fighting technique and, and admired him when he was an athlete. So he has this kind of personal interest in the case Um Zaitsev is now floating around to different military bases, working with the Japanese military to train recruits and living on base, again, kind of moving from place to place, somewhat itinerant. But as he's doing this, he's also um, using his his access to military facilities to steal data. It's never really shown who he's doing it for, but he is engaging in some sort of espionage. Bato uh, befriends Zaitsev. They do this very, like, there's so many films that follow this, like, pattern that I don't even know how to cite one. But this very, like, Top Gun, like, oh, yeah, we, like, we fight and now we're friends because you fought me and, like, almost beat me. So they they begin this friendship. Bato learns more about Zaitsev's life and his wife. Uh, He's married Eventually, they uh, Bato discovers Zaitsev's espionage and tracks him down and apprehends him. And then uh, the final, the end of the episode is basically him encountering Zaitsev's wife on the street after Zaitsev has been arrested, but his wife isn't aware of this yet. And she gives him this this alcoholic beverage, this medovka, uh, 
which I'm butchering the pronunciation, but this uh, this kind of traditional Russian beverage as a you know as a gift for uh, Bato's like non-existent wife. Part of his undercover identity was that he had a wife. So there's this moment of uh, irony where uh, Zaitsev's wife doesn't realize he's been arrested and she's doing this favor for the guy who arrested him. And then the final scene is, uh, or the end of the episode is, Bato shattering, going back to the Section 9 facility and shattering the bottle of uh, Medovka in anger and then um, punching a punching bag. So... uh, Personally, I have a lot to say about this. Again, before I get like rolling on this long tangent, uh, I want to give you a chance to to weigh in. Yeah, I again, I like this episode a lot. It's one where I'm like, you know, when it's the episode that's about the major and weird like trans resonant relationships with the body, it's like, all right, just let me talk for like a half hour straight and then you can just be like yeah i agree um and there's part of me that's just like i like i'm there there was a certain intention to me of like uh, let's do our first series that we're talking about on this podcast be ghost in the shell because i know you said that you want to be the togusa but i think you're also in some ways the bato and it's like especially bato being one that gets these kinds of episodes where i'm like i want to hear what connor's view on this like straight guy masculinity having to like suppress your emotions blah 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 in the same way that i'm hoping people find it interesting or i'm like hey here's what's going on with the major and the idea of choosing a body and like trying to occupy a body that in some ways like you didn't have a choice in and at the same time you're like actively choosing to embrace as your own so there's a certain amount where i'm just like i i want to like you know, I'm editing these. I know that the last few episodes, I think I've talked more than you. I'm I'm willing to sit back and have you talk about this episode <laughs> and, and me be the one who goes like, yeah, at the end. <laughs> okay, I hope you don't regret this decision. Okay, so yeah, this episode for me, it, it's really, uh, I find it really significant in, in a lot of ways. I think anyone, I think most people watching this, um, especially if you're the kind of person who would be like listening to our podcast when you're first watching through this episode, there's this element of like, there is this element of cheese, like a top gun type of cheese where it's like, it's just so overwhelmingly like straight dude stuff. Um, I will say top gun is overwhelmingly straight dudes who are actually very, very gay for each other, <laughs> Fair which, enough. which yes. this episode is not quite as much. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, yeah, we could do a whole a whole thing on the Top Gun effect and like how uh, separable are those two things really? But uh, for for now, we will we will focus on episode sixteen. Um, yeah, when when we take a diversion and I talk about like Yakuza cinema that's not anime, we'll we'll get into some real homoeroticism there. Yeah, we can confidently promise promise our viewers that. That will be uh, treated extensively later on. So uh, I think um, underneath all of this cheese is actually really um, incisive narrative about what I, I suppose you could call to- toxic masculinity, but I, I would just say a, a critical like look at masculinity and the way that, that masculinity 
results in emotionally broken men, specifically for like straight cis men, the way that ma- the, these kind of dominant concepts and uh, behaviors and expectations of masculinity like choke off affection and vulnerability and tenderness. So there is a, uh, and and this is uh, re- related through Bato, the character of Bato, the character of Zaitsev, and their relationship. So basically what we know about Bato it, through the series is that he has no wife, uh, he has no family, he's pretty much uh, alone in the world aside from his relationships with his co-workers. We have seen in previous episodes that he reaches out for so he he reaches out for affection or he conveys affection in these kind of different ways obviously with kusanagi in this way that's kind of like i i don't know exactly what word to use for it but in a way that's not always like wholesome and you know can be quite uh grating and like disrespectful in certain ways but and and homoerotic in other ways (laughs) <laughs> yes but we also see that there is a, there is a genuine um affection that he holds for kusanagi and i think it's it's actually we ultimately find out that he has this unrequited love for for her so there's that uh, we also see him reaching out for affection to um the tachikomas significantly he is the one who gives the tachikoma natural oil uh, which he himself says is an expression of love for the machines for his machine and then here again, we see this relationship with with Zaitsev, um, which is kind of like a star-crossed situation to begin with because he's tasked with, with arresting the guy. It's this, again, point-break type narrative of a lot of these undercover cop films have similar themes, but there's this point-break point narrative of these two men who you know, they can never really be like friends or like close friends or whatever else but nonetheless they kind of both yearn for for it um he there's a significant scene um that allows us to learn more about zaitsev where bato and zaitsev like share that uh visit zaitsev's home they they first meet zaitsev's wife and she tries to serve them this maduvka which is a again, a special type of Russian traditional beverage that she says is made by, like, traditionally made by the family collectively. Um, and it's very sweet. And symbolically, I think this this beverage kind of represents the sweetness, the tenderness of family, mutual affection, acceptance. And when she tries to serve this beverage, uh, Zaitsev is, uh, he, he reacts almost violently he does this kind of like shitty traditional shitty husband routine where he's like, no, don't serve him that. Like, oh, we're going to go out and get drinks instead. Kind of clearly rejecting this 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 gesture of, of love and, and family. Um, yeah. And him being like, this is like, why aren't you bringing out the expensive stuff? Um, and her being like, well, this is like expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. And this is actually what's better. Um, and him just being like, you know, no, whatever. Like, I'm not even engaging with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, we, we ultimately learn there's this extremely strained, distant relationship between Zaitsev and his wife. 
that he's thrown himself into this espionage um, and, and kept her at arm's length. He's emotionally unavailable, and uh, in the, the relationship is basically in you know in, in ruins. Um, it's heavily implied uh, that Zaitsev, the reason that he does this, the espionage, is due to economic hardship. Again, we know that he's somewhat itinerant. He, he had a promising career as a boxer, which was ruined for unexplained reasons. And now he kind of has a this itinerant instructor position. And uh, again, through, these, through this implication, it, uh, it seems pretty clear that he's doing this espionage to gain, to gain money to support his family. But of course, this also leads him to be arrested. Um, it leads him to push his wife away. And, and basically destroy his life. Again, I'll just uh, briefly cite the uh, the song at the beginning, the Red Shoes song, which the Tachikomas succinctly summarize as representing how familial love uh, is destroyed by poverty. I think it's significant. We, we now see how it's the reason that that is included in this episode, or one of the reasons. Yeah, one of those, like we talked about, the Miki and then the like going into the director's brain case there is this tendency that the show sometimes do where you're like these feel like two disparate parts and it's specifically doing it because they're like no actually these are we are providing two different narratives that are commenting or um, relating to each other in some way which of course the show brings back around with when he goes to throw out that Madovka and is like throwing in the trash he's also tossing out the organic oil that he was like storing in his locker as um like who knows why like some sort of like maybe someday I'll be able to give this back to the Tachikomas or something like that and is like almost going to put the Madovka in the locker and then it's just like you know I think especially reflecting on the comment that Zaitsev has of there's this idea of the prosthetic blind spot throughout this, throughout this episode that Bato loses heavy quotes here to Zaitsev because of this idea of a prosthetic blind spot, which is introducing some sort of idea that um, in some ways organic bodies might be superior to cyberized bodies, even beyond this idea of the risk of connectivity, at least in some like small areas or ways that you can exploit. And, kind of revealed that actually Bato um, threw that first match intentionally and that like Zaitsev didn't even realize that that was what was happening and says it's because actually I'm the one with the blind spot. It's a blind spot in my heart. And Mm. I think that this like hits Bato in this way where he's like, I was able to do this job and, you know, what was able to protect his heart, I think, up until that moment where the wife is then like, oh, take this home to your wife, which, again, we get this moment of, like, Zaitsev asking, like, kind of being suspicious of Bato, actually, and saying, like, you get the sense of, oh, someone to, like, someone knew I should be careful, um, and is almost prompting, like, so, like, you're, you have a family, right? You must have a photo, and Bato very cleverly being like, ah, oh, no, that's not my style. Specifically, probably knowing that then when he leaves, Zaitsev will pull out the wallet and be like, oh, you actually do have the photo in this way that is going to like disarm him. 
And of course, that photo, the wife in the photo is Kusanagi in a far more like demure housewife look than <laughs> we ever with see. With a child. Yeah, with a child. And, you know, this like this picture of a family, which is a lie. And so like Zaitsev's wife believing the, the lie and then Bato kind of realizing like, oh, I I've actually like because I am able to do this work and I'm able to lie in this way, I've, I've actually, I'm actually realizing in this moment that I'm in some way, again, as you were talking about, like the masculinity is breaking me in some way, which I I think this is one of the reasons why this episode I enjoy so much more is because I, I think it is, this episode is interrogating Bato as like this, person uh experiencing gender in this like very straight cis male way that has happened throughout the show in a way that i think is like more directly complicating it than i i think episode 10 did for me at least i like not to fully revisit us alighting over the episode to an extent but there is always a frustration for me in some ways of the narratives of those breaking of those cycles of violence around masculinity often being the first victim who gets spared being a man and like episode 10 comments on also saving one of the women in some way but the narrative is still about like Bato saving that man um and this show like this episode is engaging with Bato's masculinity in a way that is more interesting or uh, resonates more deeply with me as like something that is more directly engaging with what's also going on with gender in regards to major Kusanagi. I think that's really, um, that's a really good way of bringing out the connection between the two. I will again uh, attempt to make a somewhat, um, I will attempt to salvage episode 10 uh, a little bit. I don't. But, I don't hate episode ten. It's just my least favorite episode of the entire series, which I love this series a lot. So that's not like I hate it. <laughs> that's just it's I'll, my I'll, least. Favorite. I'll, I'll see if I can make it like more. Um, I don't think episode ten is really enjoyable anyway. You slice it, but I'll see if I can make it like slightly more interesting in a productive way for for you and anyone listening. Since we have now the material of episode sixteen to look at it through. I think as like a final comments on episode um, on the narrative of episode 16, that quotation about Zaitsev having this blind spot in his heart, I think again, you know, as you said, like the blind spot is the like pressures, internalized pressures or external pressures of like masculinity. Oh, like I have to be strong. I have to be like a provider and I have to be this like, you know, some sort of like almost like in inhuman you know uh the word the word beast is not correct uh, uh for what i'm going for here um but somehow strong in a way that's definitive of of you as a person yeah um, or to the ex- exclusion of like any vulnerability yeah or so like one of the things with a lot of modern feminist discussion that sometimes hits me weird is there's this like this like common idea that i i think exists that men aren't allowed to express emotions i i think the reality is more what emotions both men and women are allowed to express 
and that those emotions specifically figure into the construction of patriarchy, that women are allowed to express sadness, like a lot of these emotions that put you into more of a domicile or like passive or receptive position whereas the emotions that men are allowed to express are things like anger and so that when we have complex emotional reactions we have to filter it through gender in this way and like we get that in episode 10 with Bato you know not shooting him in the head but still pulling the trigger and shooting next to um, the serial killer's head and like letting out this rage and anger. And what we see in this episode, in episode 16, is Bato not being able to let out these like emotions of sadness or tenderness or affection and uh, having to then express it through the anger of destroying the the organic oil, destroying the Medovka. Um so, like, I just want to put that out there as I, like, I think the show is accurately portraying that, but that when there are these discussions about what does it mean, to, like, what is repression that men ha- uh, go under as part of masculinity, it is specifically still a filtering of emotions. Um, it is not a denial of emotions, but a filtering of emotions into emotional expressions that allow for the perpetration or continuation of patriarchy as being dominant active forces that express violence and anger and control. And that is still that women who are often portrayed as uh, being able to access more free emotions that perception is often from a male experience that feels like they cannot express like sadness. Whereas many women feel like they are not allowed to express anger or these other like more dominant, active, violent emotions. So like, I I want to like set that framework down here as, as we continue to talk about this episode, but, um, and also specifically as a framework that I think this episode and also to some degree episode 10 are engaging with, but that I think this episode is like hitting at in a different way where I'm more aware that I think they are aware that that's how emotions work in relation to gender. If that makes sense. It does. And I think, and that's kind of, I appreciate you like uh, laying that out because that it helps me uh, summarize like what I'm trying to get at. You know, I think it's not a question of like that the men in the episode uh, don't have the agency to do these things. I think it's that the filtering mechanism that they can feel these emotions, but the filtering mechanism that they that the emotions have to go through, it almost um, excludes certain possibilities at least in the drama of this episode, and I think what is being dramatized here, and the possibilities that are being excluded are this kind of like vulnerability, this tenderness, like this connection. They're either excluded or rejected for reasons that are like tied into this. So I think this episode ultimately is a really sympathetic portrayal of Bateau. I think what it accomplishes is it dramatizes this this dynamic of masculinity of patriarchal masculinity as something that is tragic with the foil of zaitsev um i think we see the tragedy is that bato 
is attempting to do this. He's attempting to reach out with love and affection um, and have it and try to establish this kind of relation. But we see repeatedly that it is it is shown to be impossible for one reason or another. Uh, he tries to do it with Kusanagi in this way that is obviously that is you know it's kind of uh, invasive and obviously never going to happen for a whole set of reasons. Yeah, although um, there's still the like I I forget if I mentioned this when we were talking about the episode with the like people stealing organs. <gasps> But there's still this, like, interesting note of it seeming like Kusanagi's girlfriends don't know about her past, but Bato does. So there's still, like, some sort of emotional intimacy that Kusanagi allows around Bato that she doesn't seem to allow around, like, again, her girlfriends that she's having or uh, abstaining from a threesome with in order to work. (laughs) Definitely. And uh, we'll talk about that more. I can't remember the exact episode, but there is this really, there's a, a, a really tough exchange that happens later between Bato and Kusanagi, where Bato basically like demands this or uh, really like lays it out there in in a way that uh, again I'm sure we'll discuss. Um, but there's this there's this tension that's occurring. Where, you know, whatever connection they have, it's clearly not this, like, this thing that, that Bato wants. It's not the kind of, like, romantic love or uh, love connection that, you know, that, that he's trying to achieve. That the photo um, in his fake wallet uh, it, presents. Or, or anything, yeah, or anything even approaching that. The ta- he attempts to do it with the Tachikomas, which uh, is disallowed by the institution of section nine um, because of the consequences that the natural, you know, his affection, the natural oil uh, causes that pathway is shut off to him. And then again, with Zaitsev, he has this like point break style, like male affection, or if you want to look at, analyze it as like a homoerotic potentiality, either way, you know, again, that is, that is foiled as well. So I think, again, this episode is showing this kind of tragedy of Bato's, of Bato's masculinity, and that he's trying to get out of this um, or move past it, and it's just not happening for him. Whereas Zaitsev is the like end product of someone who never gets to the point where they're like trying to get out of it, where it just it ruins. Like, it destroys him and it ruins his life. And he only realizes, like, too late after he's lost everything and, like, ruined his wife's life as well, that he has this blind spot, like, in his heart where he's just lost this, like, this portion of his humanity. And as a last comment, again, my, like, my ultimate salvage argument for episode 10, um, you know, I think as a trope, we see this kind of, like, this exploration of like toxic masculinity or patriarchal masculinity like play out often between two men as like a there's this there's this sense of uh like i mean they're they're foils essentially one is a potentiality for the other or a shadow for the other and 
with episode 10, I think you see like the first steps of obviously um, the serial killer, his name escapes me, um, but someone who is just completely absorbed in this, in this pathology of violence um, to an extent that he'll never be able to escape from. The, the potentiality of Bato being also like trapped within that, but then making like this significant step where yes, he's still like anger is the only thing that uh, anger is the, like dominant modality of like affect that he has access to at the moment. Um, but he, he doesn't actually do the violence towards the, the human. And so there's this like that first gradual step away from this like toxicity and the cycle, you know, that again with, um, I believe it's Marco. Yeah. Yeah. Marco kind of representing like, you know, the other path uh, of, of him not, not taking that step. So anyway, like I went on for quite a while about this. I appreciate you bearing with me <laughs> as I, as I do my little like hobby horse um, on episode 16. I, I, I'm glad because like both 16 and 17, I don't have a ton to say about, and I'm happy to have a moment to sit back and let you talk for a while. As I know that I've done that at length about like major Kuzanagi <laughs> um, in previous episodes. So, but yeah, I, we, we can move on to episode 17 here. Um, and this is one that I don't know if you like judging by the notes, I don't think you have a ton to say here. Um, there's some interesting points here, but I think it'll be more productive to talk about this stuff in the context of like, especially the next episode. Mm -hmm. So this episode is, I, I think the biggest look that we get into Aramaki. Um, so there's actually a brief comment in episode 16 about Aramaki and Kusanagi being in England. And we actually like see basically probably what's happening um, concurrently to what Bato's doing happening over here. I forget what the actual like reason why they're even there is what the reason given is because the international counterterrorism conference. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I think it's some sort of t conference, but I, I don't really remember um, because the episode in terms of the actual plot centers around Aramaki kind of saying, Hey, I have this old friend who left Japan, moved to England and I just want to go say hi to her and goes into the building um, it is this financial institution that is basically wine trading so people can invest their money into wine and it is a safe investment kind of like gold except uh, even better than gold uh, vintage is important for wine so it's like uh, more likely to accrue value over time than something like investing your money in gold is but we, we get this thing about how Part of what also makes this a uh, good investment is that you cannot duplicate or like easily reproduce the taste of wine, that there is something unique and individual about wine that then makes it hard to like counterfeit or do something like that with, which like this is again, part of what's interesting with this episode is it's touching on various other themes that are coming up. And essentially, while Aramaki is visiting his friend at this like wine bank, a bank robbery starts where these ex-mafia members are trying to get out of the mafia by basically stealing some of the wine that the mafia is storing there. 
and using it to like be their escape fund seems to be what their strategy is. Um, there's clearly some level of ineptitude on their part. This is another great moment where the, the dub is a little bit more willing to swear. So I think there's this moment where Aramaki's like, you know, don't be foolish and stand by the window. And in the dub, Aramaki's just like dumbass by the window. (laughs) (laughs) Um, like, don't you know there's snipers basically but it basically turns into this thing where the his old friend is like hey there's some sort of weird corruption or there's some weird thing happening where people are like doing money laundering or there's like some involvement with this criminal organization that's happening here and i don't know who the middleman is and i want you to investigate it and aramaki is like oh, like, I don't use the authority and power of my office for personal reasons. I hope you understand, which is a line we're going to get in the next episode. So if we wanted to talk about that more, I think we can talk about more in that next episode. But uh, basically becomes then pulled into it because this bank robbery occurs and now he is being threatened and it becomes like this self-defense thing where he can kind of uncover what's really going on but doing it in this way that's like hey the police corruption that's happening in your country endangered me as a like foreign national who was coming in here uh for this conference that some of the stuff that's really interesting about this episode for me um so one we get this thing of like they are still protecting a financial institution in some way but unlike the first episode we talked about this one is complicating a little bit more because we get this corruption in the police we get this idea of them not protecting the financial institution itself but them protecting those who are like endangered by it specifically aramaki's friend but also kind of like uncovering the uh corruption and uh problems that are currently happening so I, we're, we're getting a little bit of this push of Section 9 working independently or against, like, corruption. And we get to see them being the most, like, we are going to work against the government. And it is, in this moment, more allow, allowed or makes more sense because it is a foreign country and it is them trying to escape from this dangerous situation. But, like, that, that is an interesting part that's coming up here. The other piece that we get and is like what makes this episode really enjoyable to watch is seeing Section 9, specifically Aramaki and Kusanagi, who throughout the series tend to be the most capable. Them having to get themselves out of a tough situation, specifically like through their own capabilities and through their own like ability to just deal with the situation and not their ability to pull on the strings of government that they are so like deeply tied up into. Um, There's this moment where uh, Major Kusanagi, who like is like, I'm going to go off while you're hanging out with your old friend um, and goes and buys a like wine opener for Aramaki being like, Oh, I didn't even know he was interested in wine. I'm going to buy him this nice wine opener and then comes back and is like trying to get in. But because they can't pull the strings, the police are just like, Hey, you're not allowed in here. Like we don't care that you are section nine. This is England. This isn't Japan. Um, (laughs) And then her having to like, find her own way in so 
this is me both like doing somewhat of a recap while at the same time touching on a lot of the big points. I don't know if you have any, like I just spewed a bunch of here's what's happening in this episode and what's kind of interesting about it. Um, I want to open it up to you a little bit bef- before I conclude with kind of the ending here, which is, is probably the part that I want to talk about the most. You know, I think, uh, I think for once it's good just, you know, just for the purposes of like mixing it up a little bit. It'll be good to have an episode that that neither of us really has uh, a ton to say about. It's a fun episode, but... It is fun. To to me, this episode really feels like there's this kind of methodical introducing the team type type thing that occurs throughout season one, where like you get a couple episodes focusing on each of the members of Section 9, or all of the like significant ones. Um, Not like Borma and Ishikawa, but like Togusa, Bato, Major, and and uh, Aramaki. And I think this is kind of like Aramaki's, these two episodes are, you know, like the, hey, let's look at Aramaki. And uh, this one as well, it it feels like the episode's kind of trying to explore the relationship between Kusanagi and Aramaki. Um, Yeah, which, which for me is the most important, or the most interesting thing here, as like a thing that it is exploring that other episodes haven't touched on and explored in more depth. Um, Definitely. Um, so I'll, I'll let you, you know, talk about the ending a little bit, but this is one that, you know, I'd really like to leave open. And if any listeners are like, oh shit, I have this theory about episode 17 that, you know, here's this thing that you all didn't talk about, then, uh, uh, yeah, I'm leaving that, I'm leaving that open. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is interesting. So especially when I was watching it this time, I was struck by some of the similarity between, Aramaki's friend and Major Kuzanagi appearance wise one thing that I I think comes up again and again in this show is so like television in general and anime in general often the body types that men are allowed to have vary greater than the body types that women are allowed to have and that is happening in Ghost in the Mm. Shell and part of what becomes interesting is that I like it is hard for me to see it as quite as just like bald face. Here's us doing a bunch of attractive women because it's an anime that we're like creating for an audience because they are also dealing with cyberized bodies. And it is like, there are moments that comment on like, this is a thing that will come up when we talk about Kruskova in episode 19 of like, if I was 80 years old and could have a cyberized body, I would still look like a hot lady, <laughs> <laughs> like personally. With an uh, eye patch. <laughs> yeah. And so like, there's a certain amount to which within the world that this show is presenting, the idea that a lot of people, a lot of women in particular are going to present some sort of attractiveness, I think kind of makes more sense just because that is a more expected behavior with like our current society if people have a choice of their body type they are going to like women are more likely to probably have a limited scope of what that would be compared to men who are are generally i mean we can still talk about the chris's who all look identical um there are so many white men the bachelors like (laughs) i looked at a photo of all of the bachelors once and like 
at least five of those are the same dude. Like I, you could put them all in the same room together and I would be like, you are literally like what quintuplets or something. You like, just give them a different haircut and but, America is like, Oh, okay. Different. They're totally different guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like me speaking personally, lots of white dudes look alike. It is the, the group of people that I have the most difficulty differentiating white dudes, like wear different clothes, please. Or something. No. Uh, <laughs> but, but still <laughs> like the, the acceptable body types that men are allowed to have in like especially media is is just varied more um and again i i think to me it doesn't feel or it it feels more like an intentional commentary on gender and how it relates to bodies in this show than it does normally because of what they're doing with cyberized bodies and so there's a certain amount where i'm like at like we often see the major's body mirrored in other people um i talked about the dominatrixes like in our first episode you know discussion episode for this series this is one where again there's like a certain mirroring in terms of just the haircut or something that's going on where it is in some degree like in some ways easy to read aramaki's past love who is this woman as being some sort of like older version of major kusanagi and yet i think the show also resists it in some ways at the same time that they are like consciously drawing that parallel um and i I think that parallel is conscious as well because aramaki specifically turns down like drinking the bottle of wine with this woman and spending the night before going back to go back to the hotel and drink the bottle with Kuzanagi before flying back. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. clearly he's making a choice between which person he would rather spend time with and not like his actual time commitments being centered around this, this gift of a bottle of wine that um, his like former love interest gives him. Um, There's definitely some tension given there. And yet at the same time, there is in my reading, a lack of sexualization or like sexual romanticism that the show is trying to portray with Aramaki and Kusanagi. Their relationship here feels affectionate, but in a professional way. Again, Kusanagi being like, I I think having this moment of like, I didn't even kind of know this side of Aramaki. Let me go to this like wine store. I'm thinking about Aramaki and wine and spontaneously looking at this. Yeah, and spontaneously buying a gift to to such an extent of like, oh, are you looking for a gift? And then Kusanagi being like, no, well, sure, I guess. <laughs> like, I'll I'll buy this, actually. Now that you've raised the idea of this being a gift, yes, I will buy this as a gift. Um, and then, of course, going back and finding that, like, the police are surrounded, they're or surrounded this place and everything. And Aramaki having this trust in Kusanagi to figure out a way to get in and rescue him being able to like protect himself in the moment but having to rely on and having the trust that Kusanagi will figure out where he is hiding and come get him from that cellar where they're you know the hidden wine cellar that they're hiding out in um and being like I I like am doing this to such an extent where I am sure that I will fool the police but not major kuzanaki because i have this trust in her capabilities and again it feels like that level feels very professional or very like this like respect of each other's abilities as uh 
two people who are engaged in this work and are are like capable and you know skilled strategists and Um, also like yeah and who have built this kind of like absolute trust as like colleagues and partners that is not like a romantic it's not charged with like romantic feelings yeah and so there's this final comment that aramaki makes where kusanagi is like oh you we can postpone a day if you want to like hang out with your old squeeze like that's fine i'm i'm like cool just chilling here in england if you want to like go get your thing on or whatever (laughs) Um, is like kind of how i'm reading the interaction and then aramaki being like eh like some relationships need to mature and i think there's a certain reading that you can do that's like the real there's also something going on that's a parallel with Kuzanagi and like that relationship is also maturing and he's choosing Kuzanagi over her. But I think there's also a reading and it's the reading that I, I take more where the relationship that he's built up with Kuzanagi is actually mature, that he understands where he stands with Kuzanagi more than he does with, I'm completely drawing a blank on her name. So I'm just keep referring to her as Aramaki's love interest. But you know, this like we get that moment of she's wearing the wedding ring him being like tell your husband you know like i said hello basically and then her kind of admitting oh i didn't move here because i was getting married um i'm not married i just wear the ring to keep men at bay and in some ways is her letting down like by me telling you this, I'm not trying to keep you at bay anymore. And Aramaki kind of going, you were keeping me at bay. And now I don't know how much I want to like actively pursue it in this moment. And so that's why it's for me also this like Aramaki and Kusanagi know where they stand far more than that other relationship. Um, And so even though Kusanagi is like the younger woman, the relationship that they have has been allowed to mature into something that is more like they they understand each other they understand the relationship with each other and that there is some professional affection there but that like they know that's what it is and that's where it is right um, like it's it's grown into like what it's supposed to be you know yeah. like the concept of maturity being like okay this is kind of like the you know the end of this like entity like the the end in terms of like you know the final state, like Aramaki and and Kusanagi's relationship is mature because like, you know, they've gotten to where like they're supposed to be with respect to one another. Whereas like, you know, I think obviously uh, Aramaki and and his love interest like you know ha- have not have not gotten there because there's still these like things between them where it's like. Oh, you know, they they both seem to want like some sort of romantic engagement, but neither can really admit it to the other person. There's this kind of lack of communication uh, and understanding uh, represented by that ring and like the misunderstanding around that. Whereas like the major and and uh, and, the, and Aramaki like understand each other fully, seemingly. Yeah, I also looked up this episode on the like brief summary and they don't even give her name so um i guess i feel slightly better for forgetting i don't even know we are we're forgiven yeah (laughs) um like i don't know if i have much to say either about major kuzanagi 
doing this moment of like sexualizing herself to distract this police guard of course gender happening again one thing i will say as someone who has been interested for a long time in major kusanagi and like her relationship with the body there is a lot of doujin that like seems to take this specific scene as a jumping off point (laughs) and also like directly tying it into like sex work stuff which is like i don't fully know what to do there with that but i have definitely noticed that before um but i i think we can move on to episode 18 we'll, we'll here leave that one for I'll the question you... bucket <laughs> yeah um i will let you summarize this one a little bit more but again this is a another aramaki heavy mm-hmm. episode but one that i think is also we're probably gonna have more thoughts on even as our i'm like looking at us coming up on three hours um not of actual podcast we're going to use but of recording time so yeah uh yeah our, another long one our, thanks everyone yeah our just you know we're just going to go ahead and admit our our new like podcast time standard is tarkovsky film um so you know that's the new that's the new paradigm and everyone uh, make your decisions accordingly about how you want to just clear your schedules is what i'm trying to yeah. say I never intended this for this to be like a tight one hour podcast. Never. <laughs> yeah. Well, we would have to do like two episode increments to, to achieve that. Okay. So uh, episode 18, brief recap. Um, the, the framework of this episode is a high up in the Chinese government is uh, making a, a, a diplomatic visit to a memorial for war, the war casualties, which of, of, World War Three, we can assume there is a uh, death threat issued against him um, on this visit, and Section Nine is basically assigned to to deal with it. We learned all of this in the first, the very first scene. That's that scene actually concludes with Aramaki leaving uh, because he has a personal matter to attend to. We find out that it's the seventh anniversary of his friend, his friend's death, I believe. I believe seven's the right number. Yeah, but an old, uh, an old war buddy, as he says, uh, turns out a major figure in uh, Japanese intelligence, who was very close with Aramaki. Uh, he goes to the gravesite. He sees another another of his old friends, who is also part of the same that same group, the same contingent in the in Japanese intelligence or the Japanese military. They all served together in World War Three. And they have a brief conversation, and then Armaki is approached by the the man's daughter, who uh, basically says um, that her her younger brother is starting to act really weird. He's acting the exact same way as his as his late father. Armaki initially like refuses to intervene because he doesn't use his office for personal matters. Yeah, same excuse given in episode 17 back to back he gives the excuse and then gets pulled in aramaki a true institutionalist so uh he then you know he kind of leaves her in the lurch uh he goes back uh to the war room and is promptly presented with uh evidence that the younger brother is the main uh, suspect behind the the death threat it is uh, eventually revealed that the younger brother the um the son of the officer. I'm desperately flowing for his name right now. I should have put it in the in my notes. Yeah, it's you is the son. I'm trying to remember the father's name. 
they like mention it once. Yeah, so you, uh, the son, has has had his father's memories overwritten onto his own. Oh, Hideo, like Hideo Kojima. <sighs> of course. How could I have forgotten? He, he's had his father Hideo's uh, memories overwritten onto his own. So now the two consciousnesses are coexisting in Yu's mind. And as a result of this kind of uh, commingling, Yu has acquired the extensive like combat knowledge of his father um, and is, is actually uh, planning the assassination of this uh, Chinese official. And he attempts to carry out the assassination, but is uh, foiled uh, by Kusanagi Section 9. And then they eventually have to overwrite they attempt to overwrite his uh, his father's memories through this kind of strange procedure and it's... Yeah, we get this this fake out ending where he succeeds a, well he initially fails in the assassination but then like deploys a bomb that he has that then kills presumably bato and kuzanagi but then it's revealed that that's like false memories that they're putting in yeah, and in to fact, kind of, they like stopped him earlier. Yeah, yeah. So they're implanting false memories and overwriting his father's memories to hopefully like assuage this like these contradictions and you know, render him passive. Um, and it's it's not shown the end result of this. It's kind of implied that it's probably not going to be good or really work out well. That is really risky. And uh, the episode ends with Aramaki lamenting that his friend's consciousness, like having been erased from his son's mind, it's like his friend has died again. So yeah, it's a really uplifting uh, episode <laughs> we have here, starting with like a strong evocation of, you know, in real life, like China-Japan relations and World War II atrocities. Yeah. And then ending with like someone's best friend dying twice yeah this is one of those episodes where like i have a couple notes in our our little notes document here where again i have a friend who does some political work in japan we don't speak too often anymore but we used to speak more in the past and a lot of her work is specifically around demilitarization like trying to fight against the current push in the right wing areas of like Japanese politics to try to remilitarize uh, despite the pushes for like peace and demilitarization that happened after World War II. And so like this is one where I feel like I have enough backing in stuff that's politically happening in Japan and was probably happening around the time that the show is made. Um, this is a friend that goes back to uh, she was an exchange student when I was in high school. And so you know, was, was already kind of engaged in thinking about the stuff at that time. And so, like, I'm aware when they are saying it's the Kagoshima War Memorial that likely what they are intentionally evoking or referencing to is the Chiron Peace Museum in Kagoshima was created after World War II. And the stated purpose of the Chiron Peace Museum. Uh, it's the Chiron Peace Museum for kamikaze pilots specifically, and it is to recognize, quote, their patriotic efforts for peace. So, like, I again, this is not to once again dredge up episode 10, but this is a sh this is an episode where I see them touching on 
some of the politics of like right wing movements that have been happening in Japan. And specifically, I think being more explicit about uh, the way that Japan has viewed World War II and has politicized World War II in a way that absolves them of the guilt of like what it was that they were doing in World War II, um, which includes both like the broad they were siding with Nazi Germany that was enacting these terrible war crimes, then also that uh, perpetrating their own Japan itself, yeah, was was perpetrating its own war crimes, uh, especially in China. So obviously, this episode is evoking that both with it, like with it being this Chinese diplom or the like this Chinese politician. Um, I forget the name is uh, Jin, but I forget like I think it's foreign minister or something Chinese foreign minister um, coming to this war memorial. And like, it, it feels significant to me that the show is taking the location of the Tehran Peace Museum and then just being like, it's more explicitly like this is a memorial for a war. <laughs> and then throughout it too, there's also this, there's this narrative re- of revenge that's happening with you and Hideo and some of it being around like why Yu's mother, Hideo's wife, which is it Yui is her name? I forget. I feel like it was something where I was like, oh, that's like another anime. But uh, like how she mm-hmm. died. Um, or no, it was Ritsuko, uh, another Evangelion <laughs> character. That's right. And so so we're getting like some of it being about that, but then also about the truth about Okinawa, which the show never tells us what the truth is, but is at the same time also evoking like this long history that's been happening in Okinawa of one, it being like there was a group of people in Okinawa who were culturally or ethnically distinct from mainland China um, and have been kind of subjugated in that sense. That's also where the U S military base has been continues to have like uh, ramifications for Okinawa in that way. So like there, there's a lot of this complexity that it is dealing with and I can see that it is dealing with that complexity. And yet also I know enough to know that I don't know everything. Um, and so this is, this is an episode where I'm like, I feel like if I was even more steeped into Japanese politics, I would have so much more to say about what this is saying politically. Whereas from my perspective, I can already tell that it is engaging with these themes in a way where like it's service level to me, but I don't fully have a final conclusion about what they're saying. Whereas I feel like I might know that if I was more aware of like the full context. Mm -hmm. When there's also, um, I mean, it's clear there's some like embedded fictional history as well. um, Yeah. Where like clearly something happened in like world war three, like some sort of atrocity occurred in Okinawa where like civilians died Um, probably a lot of them including like Yu's mother yeah so my my other like big note here um so one of my areas of study was like the high level was Icelandic cinema but I like any time of type of engaging with Icelandic media with maybe like to some extent the exception of music I think you have to grapple with Icelandic sagas as well 
the legacy of the saga in Iceland is so extensive. It was the dominant and primarily only art form in Iceland, and it, it was held up to such an extreme that filmmakers like Friðrik Thor Friðriksson felt the need to respond to like the influence of Icelandic saga by releasing a film called uh, Brannunjal Saga. So like if you were going in to watch it, you would assume that it is an adaptation of this famous saga, Njál Saga or Njála. But in fact, it is just the director lighting the book on fire and you watching it burn down for like 12 minutes or something um, and like just turn into ash. Um, and so like having to comment on the super old literature as a filmmaker, like I, I think is showing you the extent that saga has this is to say that a lot of the icelandic sagas are very engaged with cycles of revenge and how they tie into kind of a proto nationhood or proto statehood like the old icelandic sagas are about the construction of a a nation and how cycles of revenge both built up a concept of a nation and also destroyed any hope it had at like true autonomy because I've read the sagas, which were proto novels written before novels existed. I am very critical of a lot of revenge stories because I often feel like they don't do anything new that was not done already in like 1300s Iceland. (laughs) Um, This episode, I think, engages with revenge cycles in a way that feels, um, I don't know if it's entirely new, but at least feels fresh to me because it is also complicating and tying it up with ideas of like memory and consciousness and the blending of like, it's not just the sins of the father and like the son having to enact the revenge of the father, but it is saying something about the way that revenge is uh, not unique to either, but is actually constructed between the two. Um, there's dialogue throughout this episode of Hideo talking to Aramaki on the phone and basically saying, like, I myself did not want to enact revenge. There is something about the youth of you, like, of me being in this young body and something about you himself that like you also does not want to be an assassin and I don't want to make my my son an assassin. And yet somehow when our consciousnesses mingle, this is what we are driven to do that on one level feels like it is, it is doing a more interesting commentary on how revenge cycles actually build up and how it is a construction of like a relationship between two individuals that like generate this need rather than something that is originating from like one person or the other, which is something that I think like Icelandic sagas again touched on where you will get the father saying like, I am old, I don't care anymore. And the son having some sort of sense of duty to still carry out this revenge. So again, like I don't know exactly how new this narrative is to me, but because it is then also saying like the complexity of the relationship between two individuals creating some sort of drive to do something that is beyond like those, those two as individuals, let us then take that trope or that theme that has existed in stories about revenge going back hundreds of years. And let us now 
use it as a way to then talk about and further explore this idea of you know the standalone complex the what is something that is created between the the blending of consciousnesses what is something that is created in this like new existence where that connection between people can become blurred in a way that it hasn't been before so despite having read a ton of revenge narratives i do not have a final thesis on this episode it is one that i feel like like i could sit down and think through and write a paper on though (laughs) if that makes sense oh definitely i think it's it's really a shame that we that we're doing that we're doing this in the context of so many other episodes because this is one that there's so much just in like the the analysis that framework that you just set up for us there is so much we can do with that you know i think this that opens the door to a discussion of you know i i do think that this episode has something unique to offer with respect to like how this revenge dynamic works in like mature uh, a more mature like nationalist environment um, like a more modern environment where nationalism is kind of matured into a, a different kind of uh, or into a more full-fledged ideology with its own uh, history like as nationalism I think the one thing I would add just as a way of like underscoring what you said um, there's an interesting dynamic where in in that phone call between Aramaki and Hideo when like this Hideo U hybrid is it has a moment of clarity as Hideo. He says specifically that his motivation for, for all of this was that he just wanted to preserve the knowledge of what happened at Okinawa. So there was some sort of again atrocity that he wants to be known and have the knowledge of it preserved. But he he didn't want to take revenge for it. He just wants it to be recorded and, and known. And I think there's a way that that speaks to a fundamental dynamic of nationalism as it is generated through generations where one generation receives the narrative of like wrongdoing or the historical like slight in, in a way that's already filtered, that's like somewhat decontextualized. And then that spurs on like, you know, a certain almost uh, predictable or like predetermined set of actions. So there's this duality of like, yeah, well, it is admirable to like preserve the historical record of like atrocity. And that's something that is necessary. Just like doing that in and of itself can also have these kind of it. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I won't even equivocate about it. Like while it's necessary um, it also provides fuel for like not for these nationalist forms of violence, and we could do a whole probably several episodes um, just pulling examples of that kind of thing happening throughout history. Listen, just admit that you don't like that I decided that we are going to do more than like two episodes per episode of the podcast. <laughs> I, no. I think it. I, I no. will. Yeah, I won't admit it. <laughs> 
it's we're just we'll just do our uh our tarkovsky length podcast yeah yeah i feel like the format will make a lot more sense when we get to something like magic knight ray earth where sometimes you're like yo let's just talk about all five of these episodes like literally at the same time because it's just like one overarching little story but yeah like and compared to a lot of anime ghost in the shell is uh does not waste time (laughs) Um, no it's it's so dense and like and really, I mean, as much as I want to be like comprehensive in the moment, um, that's obviously impossible. And I think, and not, not to like put words in your mouth or whatever, but, you know, I think our goal is like, we want to bring out these things that we're observing for like, for the listeners so they can be like, hey, maybe I didn't notice this or like, maybe I did. And I, I like, I'm glad that. I can listen to this other perspective and, you know, we, I just want to like open the, like throw these things out there, maybe not fully formed always, but, uh, as long as we're throwing them out there, I, I feel, I feel like we've, we've done our, we've fulfilled our mission. Like I, part of it too, is I just, I want us to be able to jump between episodes or like talk about the connections between episodes more broadly than I think a too narrowly focused of a podcast can can really do or can like has to do more work and also rely on the listener more to remember like the long-term arc of the podcast in a way where I'm like I just want us to have really dense conversations for a few hours that someone can listen into yeah one of these days we'll do our like shot by shot formal analysis podcast like you know way down the road probably probably not um but maybe maybe one day um one thing i think not to like jump the gun if you want to get into this but you have a a note about the comparison between the tachikomas and the like what's happening with humans here with the blending of consciousness Mm -hmm. and like, I guess I'll react to what you have written here and then maybe you can respond to that. Um, Cause you can have put like, is this a meaningful difference between humans and robots that the Tachikomas um, are able to sync their memories and remain individual. Whereas like the opposite seems to be happening with the humans here. And from my perspective, I think it is, it is that both humans and robots are like converging into a similar existence and the difference is not necessarily that the tachikomas can sync and maintain individuality or whatever but that it is merely the direction at this like point of merging that they are coming from that that the tachikomas are coming from a state of syncing and are moving towards consciousness towards this this thing in the middle that is somewhere between consciousness and syncing and that the humans are moving from this like fully individual towards this sinking of consciousnesses. And it is only our perspective as humans that what is happening with the other humans is abhorrent and what is happening with the Tachikomas is somehow, somehow transformative that I think it is actually like both are arriving at the same point And it is just a subjective, like anthropocentric view to say that the sinking of human memories to create a new individual is like 
a horrible thing that is happening, whereas the like desyncing of Tachikomas to arrive at some sort of new individual that's like again in this like middle space if we are to like draw a map of it is like this positive thing or this like creation of something like exciting and new my perspective on what the show is doing and what is happening in this show is that it is this like both the tachikoma and the the human people like um you and hideo and then you know without going mm-hmm. into too much like something similar is going to happen with major kuzanagi um that this the arrival of both of these processes is essentially the same place um it is just the starting point that differs okay yeah that's a um that's an interesting perspective on it because i kind of i i felt like well first of all i i think as you pointed out like not to spoil anything but what happens later with kusanagi is can be seen as if for the purposes of argument like we say what happens with you and hideo is somehow is somehow damaging which um it in my eyes uh i think i think there's an argument to be made that like this is not not necessarily like uh desirable for like the the confusion that that creates for for both individuals seems to me at least uh potentially in a biased way but like it seems to me to be something that has been damaging or something that causes like some sort of suffering and not like exactly a desirable state versus like what ends up happening later with kusanagi uh, which seems to be a more stable or like quote-unquote like uh perfected like version of of this thing that is being gestured towards the reason that i have this reading of you and hideo is because again like sometimes the series it kind of maps out these fields of possibility so in the in the scene with the um vocational the i can't remember which episode it is but the scene that introduces, or the episode that introduces cyberbrain closed close shell syndrome, um, there's that like strong horror scene where they talk about the orderly diving into the the kid's cyberbrain and getting like consumed in there, and it's like oh this kind of like horrific body horror almost type of thing, and yeah it, it is it's from Togus's perspective, um, so you could read that as like a uh again the horror is just in his perspective um or you could read it as like oh wait this actually doesn't sound like something appealing here we have the next step where it's like oh yeah this is what this actually like looks like when two consciousnesses get like trapped together they're not like fully merged they're just kind of like coexisting like uneasily in this like single entity um, and then later we have like Kusanagi and the Laughing Man. Spoiler, that seems to be like a- another step beyond that. Yeah, I, for me, in some ways, like we've talked about this in terms of like what the show's doing with gender in the body, where the first time we get introduced, it's this like, let us start from the default assumption, and so let us like 
introduce body swapping in terms of you know the official who is doing it for these like presumably perverse reasons and then let us like complicate it as it goes on and so when i say that like i don't think what is happening with merging of consciousness a consciousnesses is necessarily abhorrent or terrible inherently um, evil yeah well, i i am specifically talking about that like inherent and so the show is showing us this danger in this moment of like this process is a process that is generating um, nationalist violence and like these terrible cycles of revenge. And yet I think as the show continues to complicate it, and this is part of what I find interesting with this episode and how it's dealing with revenge, it's actually saying that that cycle of revenge that's happening within like you with merging with the consciousness or the memories of Hideo that it is not the process of the actual merging that is causing the the horror there. It is the same old cycles of revenge that existed even before this was possible. Yeah. And that the merging of consciousnesses is not the part that it is terrifying or abhorrent or horrific about what has happened. Because we then later see the version of it with Major Kusanagi and, you know, you've, you've done the spoiler, the laughing man, but that is like, in some way more transformative or pushing towards like revolutionary ideology rather than this like nationalistic violent ideology. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's becoming this, like, I don't have a ton to say with like Benjamin and Bazen again, but this is like part of why I was getting into it again as well, because I'm like, okay, there's this stuff about like, this show is also commenting in the same way that Benjamin talks about it and then like Bazen further explicates how those differences occur or like what constructs the death of the aura in the work of art like what can turn that towards either fascism or towards like revolutionary politics and and so I think like this show is also exploring these technologies and starting you from a point of view of like of course, what is happening to human com- consciousness is like a terrible thing. And then is actually saying like, no, what is actually happening with like the, the death of the aura, the like the ghost is the single pure thing that exists uh, within an individual and is like unconnected from other things. The breakdown of that line or the like emerging of consciousnesses like is not in and of itself a terrible thing. And it is like the the ways that those become applied or you know like the ideologies inherent within it that then begin to shift it in different directions Mm -hmm. i think we can also this is kind of going along with what with what you just laid out that um you can see it as a progression like especially with relation to like the opening quote where it's saying like this hey this is not possible yet that's kind of the presupposition of the series of like uh, consciousnesses are converging, but it's not it's not possible for them to converge and then also like retain their sense of like their the integrity of them as individuals. You can see this as being like okay, the, the show itself is dramatizing like how we progress from that point where it's not possible to the point like where it is possible, and the part of it is the the progression of that like technology or that possibility 
it, it doesn't happen instantaneously. So we kind of have to see these like almost examples of instances where perceived either perceived or really or in reality it isn't achieved it's like uh, gestured at or attempted but not fully achieved yeah Um, and often not achieved because the systems suppress it both by like sending the tachikomas back to the lab and by like injecting false memories into you to try and undo this in some way Mm. which again like what what is happening to you does not seem to be a positive thing and yet also the the fix for it does not seem to be like a positive thing either yeah and like for me there's a certain amount of reading into it too of like is perhaps part of within the logic of they are telling a story and that story is explicitly about politics and ideology is part of why that attempt to like fix you so risky and most likely going to result in like uh, a bad outcome is because the fix is to still like enable or lean into some sense of this nationalist violence rather than arriving at some other kind of conclusion that the conclusion that they arrive at is like you do still assassinate the foreign minister and then we also like rip the rest of the memories out of your brain yeah like rip the memories of the atrocities that hideo is trying to preserve so like i i don't want to i'm I'm looking at our like record time here i think we can move on but um who just passed the andre (laughs) rublev mark yeah So uh, episode 19, I think this is one where I'm going to do a little recap. Basically, the plot of it being we, we have this great scene at the beginning of this woman in, like vanishing into thin air, essentially. It actually mimics a scene that we saw earlier where Major Kusanagi went invisible as Togusa drove away. But here it's just this crowd of people and this girl just vanishes as like her, our view of her is briefly obscured by someone walking past. And it's revealed that this is most likely tied to this human trafficking that is occurring from, uh, I I forget, it's like the Northern Territories. It's Um, like Russia. It's like the Russian mob, basically. Yeah, so it's basically this Russian mob organization. And specifically, the group is called, is it Blind Ivan or Blindfold Ivan? Yeah. Where they're abducting these girls and then basically breaking them down for organ parts to the to then like export and sell pleasant yeah was alluded to in some of the previous episodes and here we we get like a more explicit look at the actual mafias that are doing this what's one thing that's interesting with this episode is like the tension of the incompetency of like the individuals who are doing this abduction that they take kanzaki and it's actually revealed that like so the the woman who is abducted or the girl who's abducted is the daughter of this former prime minister Kanzaki who stepped down after the scandal where he continued to deny the existence of blindfold Ivan and so then his daughter is abducted and 
in many ways, it seems to be this incompetence thing where they don't know that they abducted it. But we do get a reveal later on uh, from Kruskova, who seems to actually be like somewhat competent and like a, a quote unquote professional they refer to her as that like she was put on a list. And it's like, why the hell did that happen? Um, why would you put the prime minister who like basically defended us by denying our existence on this list and and have me kidnapped. i think they say that it was like she lost an internal power struggle and then whoever she lost to like set her up by giving her this doctored list yeah but we we get section nine basically hunting them down and as part of rescuing the girl basically tricking this former prime minister into admitting that blindfold ivan does exist that he you know essentially destroying any hope of like continuing his political life in order to save his daughter this is i don't know if we'll have quite as much to say in this episode as we have some of the other ones especially given the time we definitely do get more of the bodies being like broken and deformed for weaponry here chris kova again truly inspired to be an 80 year old in the body of a hot lady um but also like discarding her arms as bombs and just like in general having tons of weird weaponry within her body yeah her Um, her other arm is a gun blade yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i i think one of the the biggest things that is happening here that is again the way that i've chosen to break these episodes up is intentional and that i think we are ending here with something that is pointing towards the conclusion of the series where we are going to get section nine acting towards some sort of sense of justice that they have that is in defiance of the state that they are otherwise tied to and we get like the light version here of seeing like oh aramaki is willing to twist this case in order to further disgrace this former prime minister and try to make some sort of political move against the corruption that like he is in some way representative of when it is like at this point when it is convenient and can be like has the plausible deniability of like oh this is the only way we can save your daughter that's yeah that's a good point i think we've talked a a couple times already about like how section nine another way of reading there's so many ways of reading the overall arc of ghost in the shell um but one way of reading it is of this kind of like this arc of section nine becoming dislocated from the institution and then spoiler alert, uh, like relocated. But uh, this is another step in that narrative. It's kind of setting up for the final, like this final uh, sub narrative where that really takes center stage. And uh, you can see, I think one thing that I just want to throw out there is the fact that Aramaki extorts the truth about Blindfold Ivan from Kanzaki. On one hand, you can read this as him doing this because it's basically the right thing to do, and he's using the case's cover to like achieve that goal. And you can also read it as, and I think both of these readings are, are actually valid, that he does this because it is, is also the most like efficacious way to resolve this incident and uh, i think that reading is going to hold true in the the final set of episodes 
uh, where we see Section 9 itself become endangered, where it's like, yeah, they take the, they take these actions that, like, you know, put them at odds with the government to kind of, like, expose corruption, but they're also doing it for, like, clear uh, operational and, like, institutional reasons, um, including self-preservation. And I think that's a, also a defining aspect of Aramaki's character is this, this tension between, like, efficacy and then, like, righteousness. And sometimes they seem to converge. Um, and then sometimes they seem to, efficacy seems to take precedence. And the question of justice is not really considered. Yeah, I I think some of the other interesting parts that come up here is we, again, kind of get Togusa as the self-insert who is the one like most directly expressing disgust with this former prime minister and Bato at the end, like when it becomes clear that the Aramaki is like pulling again, it's Togus's words, like is tricking Kanzaki to do this, which again, like, as you say, you can read Aramaki's actual intentions differently, but this is how Togusa is reading them. Um, and Bato being like, you and the chief have the same blood after all, which I think is also going to be interesting as we go into the final episodes where Tokus is going to take the center stage for some of those episodes, kind of in relation to this, like, seeking of some sort of justice. Definitely. Well, the only other comment I had is uh, I was uh, I was amused by this and I noted it. The villains in this episode... Um, seemed to me to be uh, a clear reference to Kusanagi and Bato. They just look similar. Their relationship seems to be like kind of like a, a satirical mirror. And I, I do think that's significant because it uh, the two villains in this episode are betrayed by the institution that they're a part of. And it's in that sense, it's foreshadowing. Um, what we'll see in the the next episodes that we look at. Yeah. One other note here of just like a thing that I found amusing was this comment that the former prime minister makes of, if you ask me, citizens serve the state, which is like showing us to some degree the, the perspective of the powers, which is perhaps not that at odds with like modern politics. It also reminded me of this phrase that I learned of that, again, I think it is more popular in or has become corrupted to be more popular in right wing parts of Japan uh, or like movements. Um, And it's my country, right or wrong is kind of the literal translation of it. And it is this thing where the meaning that is generally being expressed when people say that currently is this like unquestioning support for the Japanese government but the actual origin of that phrase was actually stating like if my country is wrong it is still my country and so I have a duty to correct it that like I I am engaged with and have to work towards like creating a country that is in the right, that has like actual justice at its heart. Um, and that it has been like twisted into this, like whether it's just or unjust, it's your country and you're, you're supposed to support it. 
and this like that line struck me as like i don't even know if they're just like trying to like they may have been directly referencing that phrase i don't know because i it's apparently like a, a somewhat common or remarked upon phrase in like japanese politics but like i i felt that in this if you ask me citizens serve the state which like again i think is also hitting at this like that tension of what kanzaki is saying is like the citizens should just serve us and like do what we say but that could also have been interpreted as like citizens need to like push the state towards justice or towards what is good so i i just wanted to bring that up as like this this stood out to me and felt like it was hitting on something that I know exists currently and a a phrase that I know exists and like seems to be hitting at a similar tension. Well, if you know about Japanese politics, right in, weigh in with your thoughts. Yeah. We have, we have a mailbox. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess we can, we can wrap up again. If you want to write in our email is ghostdiverspod at gmail.com put the name of the anime at least in the title um will just help me sort especially as this goes on right now this is the only episodes you've heard but um we've mentioned other anime we're gonna we're gonna talk about evangelion and magic knight ray earth and everything if you have questions about those send them in i'll save them for when we finally get to it <laughs> um, just real any anime it's a free for all yeah um just send yeah if in. you want to write about we might get to it in 2020 yeah if you want to write about my hero academia i'm sure we'll cover that in like the 30s or something <laughs> <laughs> you know once like no one cares about my hero academia anymore exactly um so in terms of next episode we will be wrapping up ghost in the shell with episodes 20 through 26 so sad to see it go yeah it's it's gonna be a ride there this is just like you can if you want to i don't know how people have been watching this you can probably sit down and just like watch all seven of these episodes as a movie if you want there there's like a lot of direct connection between them who knows we might even approach discussion next time a little bit more free-flowing between episodes because of it otherwise uh thank you for listening thanks to the export audio network for hosting our files uh, again you can go to patreon.com slash export audio uh, if you enjoy this show i guess go there you can also follow us at ghost divers pod you can follow me personally at fox mom Nia. where can people find you uh, at rabbleis r-a-b-b-l-e-a-i-s yeah and, uh, that that's it see you next time brown 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 <laughs> <laughs>
You know, I really, um, I know that we're gonna have like, I mean, you have a, already like a better plan for the music in place, but I really wanted to do like, do you know, do you know that song Ghost Rider by the band Suicide? <laughs> have you ever heard that? Yes. I, uh, I want that to be our intro music so bad. Just like the fucking like first like 15 seconds of that. But you, licensing. Yeah. You don't enjoy she is so cold and huge. <laughs> <laughs> just no, incredible no, I, math connor just yeah. incredible math it's it's something humans do yeah and is she she's, really human i don't know but she's very number nine yeah she's so just so number nine. <laughs> she's just so something new a walking <laughs> lithium flower just about to bloom i smell wow. lithium now connor yeah. smelling lithium now that's definitely a good sign that's definitely a sign of a healthy a healthy constitution (laughs) yeah Uh, so uh, I will leave all of you listeners with this how is she when she doesn't surf I wonder what she does when she wakes up profound god I love that stupid song so much way into the mailbox with your answers how is she when she doesn't surf? Really I mean, think on that. Yeah, it's it's difficult to contemplate, really. I think that's beyond our ken. All right. Do you do you want to finish recording? You got any more jokes? No, I I I'm, I got them. They're all they're all out. I I expended all my humor for the day. Jokey jokes. Bye. As as, as distinct from just normal jokes. Yeah. All right. Fuck I'll, normal I'll... jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll let you leave the closet now. All right. Then has Craig joined the party? I told Craig to. Craig, what the hell? This fucking slacker. Craig, join general. <laughs> this is weird. I don't know why Craig's not joining. Craig is online. Craig, are you okay? Craig is message Craig. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to post this in the not Craig channel just in case there's something weird going on with those permissions. Let's see if this works. No. Come on, Craig. I don't know what's going on with Craig. Okay, so you you are able to see me because I said Craig leave, and then Craig said I'm not recording that channel. Craig, join general. Um. Craig. I think Craig needs a wellness check. We're going to have to decommission Craig. (laughs) 
Yeah, we're going to have to reset him. Send him back to the lab. All right. How, how goes your note? Um, just trying to find the name of that the song that they are uh, that they're saying that the Tetrachromas are singing. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's this. I think it's this. Uh, uh Akai Kutsu, like red red shoes. Uh, it's not really necessary. Yeah. Um, the girl with red shoes was taken away by a foreigner. She rode on a ship from Yokohama Pier, taken away by a foreigner. I imagine right now she has become blue-eyed, living in that foreigner's land. Every time I see red shoes, I think of her, and every time I meet a foreigner, I think of her. Yeah, that's a, that's a happy song. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Oh, wow. It's believed that there is an actual young girl from uh, Fushimi... Shizuoka Prefecture, named Iwasaki Kimi. When she was three, her parents joined a commoner's farm in Hokkaido that at the time was being watched as a part of the socialist movement. However, the farming life was harsh, so using her father-in-law um, as a medium, That's gotta be she, it. Was, she was entrusted to American missionaries. That's got to be it. Yeah, so that's like even more touching on like oh socialism and communism. Yeah. Yeah, I think like it's funny that we had like uh I'm not gonna burn any pod, but it seems like like you took a more like communist reading of the Tetrachomas. Um and I took a more like theoretical like consciousness like the goat I you could like continue it on with the ghost reading. So it's kinda Reading of your notes, I was like, "Oh yeah, that uh, it really is. Uh, that makes sense. I didn't consider yeah. that." That makes me also wonder if the the dub in particular, having the Tachikoma say "comrade," is to like evoke the same sense that that song would probably evoke for like a Japanese listener. That if you're just watching a dub, you're probably not going to pick up on. Yeah. Well, like the like. Well, I won't burn any pod. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to it. Okay. Um, I'm gonna do like a. Well, I guess we can do a clap now, and this will that will give me the uh, before pod. So, time what, dot is. What time do you want to do that? Um, I'm currently pulling up time dot is. Um. We can do it at 40 seconds. Okay. Mm, that one, that Those one seemed a little, yet. oh, that one sounded off to me. Oh, really? Oh God. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to, we can try again just and see, just yeah. to see, do we want to do it uh, on like zero, zero? Yeah. I had that leg again, but we'll go with it. Okay. I think it'll be all right. Yeah. Editor's note. It wasn't. All right. It was 519 AM in Moscow. It's 5 AM somewhere. <laughs>